This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Western Los Angeles, Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his good friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a treatment center that helps people by using compassion and connection rather than control. They have multiple decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical when you're kicking anything. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Fucking sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're looking for a place to go, I highly suggest going to Oro. Everybody loves Oro. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Your Sober Buddy. What's Your Sober Buddy? It's an app. It's a sober app that helps you stay sober. It helps you determine if you should be sober. It sets you up with these cool challenges that help keep you mindful and in the moment. I love Sober Buddy. I still use it on a daily basis. It is also an app that has a clean time tracker that is absolutely free. They also have a really, really cool community. They're going to be at DopeyCon, so check them out at www.YourSoberBuddy.com or get the app on the App Store or the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's a husband, a wife, a daughter, a son, mom, dad, best friend, colleague, job, hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On Dopey, our mission includes building a strong community, the importance of staying connected, and working to break the stigma, not to mention fire Dopey stories and other dumb shit. And that's why we've partnered with Soberlink to expand and strengthen our community even further. Not to mention Chris used Soberlink when we recorded the show every week. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or a relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery through an online forum where people can read and share their recovery stories. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at www.soberlink.com dope. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave and I'm in Park City, Utah at the fucking deer, I don't even know what it's called anymore. Hi, I know it's called the lodges at Deer Valley because I'm wearing a terry cloth fucking robe 
with a lodges at Deer Valley Crest. Again, I'm wearing a terry cloth robe with a lodges at Deer Valley Crest as I record this episode for Dopey in my hotel room with a patio. Fucking, it's pretty nice out here. I have to say, in the many, many years, in the almost seven years that we have done Dopey, I've never been treated uh, this well anywhere. No one's ever cared this much about Dopey. And, um, and I'm at the Park City Song Summit. And the Park City Song Summit is not a music festival. They don't use the F word for fucking festival. It's a summit where people get together and talk about songwriting and wellness and mental health disorders and substance abuse disorder or substance use disorder. And um, this morning I saw a lab with Jason Isbell, uh, fucking Warren Haynes, this other lady, Margot Price, I think her name was, and Jay Sweet talking about John Prime. Then I saw another lab with Warren Haynes talking about the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead. And the whole day, I met DMC from Run DMC. I'm going to go see him tonight perform. I'm going to see Warren Haynes perform tonight. I met a shit ton of nice people. Uh, we might be getting some great guests from my schmoozing it up and networking here in uh, Park City Song Summit. So hopefully next year they send us back here because this is fucking the life. The only problem is I arrived ill so I missed the first night of crazy fine dining and schmoozing. Instead, I spent the night watching Mad Men and sleeping, going to bed a little too early, waking up in the middle of the night, having an extended time alone in the middle of the night. But uh, today was really fun. I have a jacuzzi in my room, which uh, I'm going to use when I'm done recording Dopey. I'm going to put it at high, high, high heat, see if that can't help. Tomorrow I'm conducting a lab with the, with this filmmaker, Michelle Ezrick and uh, Keith Gard, who is Aerosmith's co-manager, and we're doing a talk called What Would Love Do on Trauma, Addiction, and Healing. And then I'm going to interview Langhorn Slim, who I saw today. He, was ha- he gave me a big hug. I feel like a big shot out here. It's pretty sweet. But um, it's ridiculous. Fucking... Uh, This morning I ran into a guy I used to work at Burley Bear with, and that was nice. That made me feel at home. And uh, he was like, yeah, last time I saw you, you were all fucked up. And the funny story is, in the artist room, right, there's a room where they give you snacks and, you know, coffee and breakfast and stuff. It's like some big-time place where artists like myself go. They, uh... (laughs) There were like people getting these IV bags and I and I figured they were, you know, I think it was actually Charlie Musselwhite, uh, who's an older blues performer. And I figured he was getting like dialysis. But it turns out they're giving IV bags with B12 and anti-inflammatories and all this shit uh, to combat the um, the altitude. And I feel a little bit out of breath. Complete between that and my chest cold, I feel out of breath in the altitude. But they're providing these IV bags, and I see the guy Keith, who I'm doing the talk with, getting his IV, and he's like, "Do you want to get one?" And I'm like, "Sure." So I sit down to get an IV bag full of B12 and anti-inflammatories and all this other bullshit, 
And uh, I swear to God, the nurse, who was a lovely lady from Pennsylvania named Deb, insulted my veins for like, I want to say like an hour. I'm not even exaggerating. She was like, your veins are so small. I can't hit that. You know, the, the needle was gigantic. And uh, she's like, your, your veins are so small. They're so hard to hit. Some are dead. And then... Uh, uh, then she finally found one and she said that my I had the toughest skin she's ever dealt with and that I was the hardest person to, to hook an IV up to, which was uh, horribly insulting. And then after that, I uh, <laughs> after that, I, I, she finally hooked it up. So I'm sitting on an IV with this woman named Tammy McCrary who actually is Shaka Khan's sister, and she thinks Shaka Khan might come on Dopey. We had a great time. I'm a big shot with a big IV bag, pumping out B12 and all this shit. And afterwards, I, maybe I felt better. I, I don't know. I, I, the jury was out if the IV did anything except for have this lady insult my veins. Now, I know I feel like a big shot, but I need you to sign up for Patreon anyway. Go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And uh, I just posted a new Methadone Minute, which is kind of a train wreck. It's this crazy guy with a big coffee stain on his shirt, just talking the old Methadone talk. And then uh, this very slick cut thing that Ivan did for Sober Buddy, which is kind of interesting. But the Methadone Minute you should definitely uh, check in on. And then DopeyCon is coming. It's coming quick. And I've gotten a bunch of DopeyCon soundtrack entries. I think I have four. Now, four entries. Next week on Patreon, we're going to play them all. And we're going to figure out who wins the uh, $500 plus free ticket to DopeyCon contest. So if you want to go to DopeyCon and you are short on funds, then you should write a song about a minute Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Um, please do that. I got this very interesting message on Instagram, but I also just, as I was recording, got an email on, uh, on Dopey email. So I want to check out this email. Let's see if I got an email. There we go. That's oh, long. I'm going to read it anyway. What the fuck? Do you guys want, I'm going to give you the choice, and then I'm just going to do this anyway. Do you want to hear the multimillionaire guy on Instagram or hear the email that just came in this second? All right, hold on. We're going to do both. We're going to start with the email that just came in this second. What's up, Dave? My name is Jess. I'm 29 from Dallas, Texas. I find you while listening to the Last Day podcast and had to look up your show and have since been binging it for the past week and... uh a half starting from the first 20 or 30 episodes and now shuffling around back and forth. Man, I got to say, Dave, you are such an inspiration. That's so nice. I love everything about you and your story. I've been sober from using IV meth for five fucking years as of last month. Nice. Even though I only used hard drugs for four years, it felt like an entire lifetime. Sometimes it's hard to believe that I even lived that insanity. I'm a literal different person. I've got so many stories that are similar to what I've heard on your podcast. And I wanted to share the story that helped me, quote unquote, receive the message, as you guys say. Ha ha. And here's her story. So, uh-oh, that's a weird sound. 
I'm going to change these cables. Hold on. I'm actually using the old, the old, old, old dopey gear because it's the most portable, the little Zoom recorder. And you know who else is here? Fucking B. Getz. B. Getz might come on this episode. And before I read you this story, this episode is very, very special because Jerry Stahl is on this episode. I've been trying to get Jerry Stahl on dopey for literally since we started. Anyway, here is the story. So I had been living in a very tiny city in Arkansas with my ex in a tiny apartment in a secluded valley straight out of a Bob Ross painting. Beautiful forest surrounding the property and a fresh spring stream that ran right through. Gorgeous. And I have to say, Park City is the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life, besides my dad's lake house. Park City is a close second. During the past few months, we had been running $300 ounces of crystal from Texas and selling the shit in Arkansas for $1,000 gold mine. Doing the eight-hour drive two or three times a week with a trunk full of rigs and water bottles. We had been doing this run for months now and getting a fuck ton of drugs out of the deal. Well, the last time we made that drive, we had already picked up the ounces and a bottle full of miscellaneous pills and were on the road through Oklahoma back to the Ozarks in North Arkansas. The car was mine was mine. My ex did not have a license and was actually wanted in Texas on a blue warrant, but we sometimes still rotated driving so the other one could do a bump in the passenger seat. He was driving when we pull into a small town called Atoka in southern Oklahoma. Well, this dumb fuck decided that it was a great idea to slam on the brakes at a fucking yellow light. Yeah, the tires screeched and everything. Fucking insane. Needless to say, it grabbed some unwanted attention from Choctaw Patrol. We didn't even notice after the red light incident. I was like, okay, dude, you better let me drive. So we pull into a McDonald's and two cars pull in right behind us. No lights. We get out about to switch seats and the cops are asking us all kinds of questions. We are both zooted and definitely looked like it. My ex tried to make a beeline for the McDonald's entrance. He later said to ditch the rigs in his pocket, but it didn't make it inside. He was searched. I was searched. The car was searched. (sighs) The first thing they found were obviously needles in his pocket. Needles in an Arizona tea can in the cup holder of the car and a couple cases of rigs in the trunk. Where are the drugs, you might ask? Well... We had a magnetic hideaway box that magnetized to, like, the underframe of the car. But like I said, we were banging the whole drive, so of course the magnet box was not under the car. It was in the fucking floorboard. Everything was found. So my car (coughs) was registered in Arkansas and my fucking license from Texas, and we got caught up in Oklahoma. These drug charges were not pretty. We each got trafficking and illegal drugs, all kinds of possession charges, and I also got the most Oklahoman fucking charge of allowing an unauthorized person use of vehicles. What the fuck is that shit? I have had a public intoxication in the past, but that was the only other time I had been to jail. My ex had already racked up felony after felony and warrants out the ass, so he was a goner. Side note, the cops were not too bad. I understand they were just doing their job. And before they searched the car, they said they might even let me go if it was just a little personal (laughs) pack. They quickly changed their mind after seeing the fucking fistful of shards that we had. Also, when we got to the jail, they let me and my ex hug, kiss, and share a cig before saying our goodbyes and heading into the cold building that was our new home. 
Anyways, I get into the female part of the jail and immediately get put into population, which is like the community cell where all the inmates are small town, so not too big, not too many people. It was one big room, about eight or nine bunk beds, a TV, one toilet, a shower, and two picnic tables. We never left this room. The only, t- the only door opened was to bring in food, commissary, or when someone was going to court. A couple days passed, and I'm miserably detoxing, freezing my ass off, and all I can think about is sugary candy snack cakes and chocolate. Almost every single girl in there is there for meth. There were even a couple who had a bag and were swallowing par- and, and were swallowing parachutes in the bunk. I talked to my sister and my mom's on the phone a few times, and after seeing my charges, they were not encouraging whatsoever. My arraignment happened, and bond was set for ten for a hundred thousand dollars, and so there was no way I was getting bailed out. I went to a dark place, bawling nonstop and feeling extremely suicidal. After a few days of clarity, due to no one to due to no using, I started to feel again. I started to think again. My body hurts. I'm extremely moody. That's weird. My boobs hurt. They are bigger than I remember. That's weird. Uh oh. I wonder when my last period was. I can't remember. How long was it? After three days of hysterically begging correction officers for a preg- fucking pregnancy test. They finally drive a block over to the family dollar to grab me one. Oh, God. The officer pulls me from the population cell to the intake cell where it's just me and her and makes me take the test right there in front of her. That CO was the person to tell me that I was indeed pregnant. Instantly, I'm feeling all kinds of conflicted, all spelled with five L's. I'm so shocked, ecstatic, I'm going to have a baby, but I'm in fucking jail. Holy shit, I'm going to have a baby in prison. So it was a really weird mix of emotions. I send out a kite to my ex and let him know. I call my family and let them know. This is what saved me from certain death and from certain prison. Finding out I was pregnant in jail was a miracle. This changed everything. My family got me a lawyer, and well, long story short, I was out on probation a week later. I had supervised... Uh, I had supervised probation for three months and then unsupervised for the rest of the time. (sighs) My kid's dad signed for 20 years, six in and 14 on paper. It was a good deal considering his priors. That was the summer of 2017, and I thank God for sending me to jail. If I was not given that moment, that clarity of mind that jail gives you, I would never have thought of my missed period. I would have probably kept pumping fucking shards through my blood because that's the f- what the fuck addicts like me did. And who knows what would have come to my guardian angel of a daughter. She probably wouldn't exist, and I probably wouldn't exist either. This entire situation felt so spiritually timed that I was grateful it all happened. I wouldn't have done it myself, and it was obviously some type of divine intervention absolutely had to happen. I felt some sort of energy snatch the reins right out of my grasp and lay out a new plan in front of me. I was powerless to this redirection, but I fully embraced it and I never looked back. Well, except for that one time, but that's a story for another day. Ha 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 ha. Sometimes <clears throat> sometimes I forget that I'm a recovering addict and my sobriety looks a lot different than yours. But I try to remind myself that I am afflicted and I will always be and that being an addict never just goes away. Your podcast and other addiction podcasts help me remember why the fuck I am clean today. 
Your podcast is pushing me to recount some of my own stories, and it reinforces the fact that I never want to be in that place ever again. The fact is, I did that. I lived through that, and I'm better for it. My traumatic life and hideous addiction changed me. I have more empathy, and I am so much more capable of compassion and understanding. I can connect with others on another level and have had hundreds of lifetimes worth of experience. My soul just knows things now. I feel wiser. I have so much more to say. Uh, I have so much more I want to say, but I think this is enough for now. Mm. Today I listened to the episode where Chris first talked to Todd. He was begging to bring Todd on so they could roast you together. I had a pretty deep and emotional response listening to it, knowing that they both are now dead. It sucks that people die from this thing, but I have to believe that even though the stats the stats are our friends and loved ones, every life lost is a step closer to a cure. I got to have hope for my people. Thank you, Dave, and for staying strong and keeping on with the pod. You've come so far, or you've come so fucking far. I find myself at work cheesing so big and beaming with pride for you and the Dopey Nation. I will forever be grateful and I will forever be listening. Your fan and friend, Jess. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Thank you, Jess. That's a very emotional fucking email. Great story. I want to know how's your daughter? What, what happened to your daughter? Where are you at? What's going on? What happened to the father? We need a follow-up story. We need a follow-up story. All right. Well... Like I said before, Park City is ridiculously beautiful. Here's the quick, the crib notes. Park City is ridiculously beautiful. At the Park City Song Summit, I'm not a big shot, but I'm having a good time. It's, it's been going really well. Um, I'm thinking of going to two shows tonight, but I'm so tired right now, and I'm thinking about just taking a shower and going to bed. I don't know. I haven't figured that out. Uh, sign up for Patreon. We have Forever in Debt shirts coming out, and they look pretty sweet to me. It also looks like there's going to be DopeyCon merch. It also looks like there are still, I would guess, 25 tickets left for DopeyCon. If you want to be one of the last 25 people, get the ticket now. Go to DopeyPodcast.com and click on the DopeyCon link. Now we have perhaps the greatest addiction writer, living or dead, his name is Jerry Stahl. His big book was Permanent Midnight, but he came on to talk about Permanent Midnight, which, of course, was the movie with Ben Stiller, and his new book, 999. And um, listen, I read both of them. I, I spent, like, the summer with Jerry Stahl. Jerry Stahl. I've mispronounced his name a million times. But uh, I really, really like both books. Permanent Midnight might be the best addiction memoir I've ever read. And 999... One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust is actually pretty relaxing reading. It was pretty relaxing summer reading and uh, and also listening on Audible. So I would check out both of those books on Audible or hard copy. But uh, enough with the fucking bullshit. Here is Jerry Stahl. Listen, I cannot say, I cannot underplay the amount of joy and excitement I have for our guest on the show today. His name is Jerry Stahl. He is a writer, screenwriter, fucking junkie hero, legend. Uh, is it annoying for me to cavell over you this much, Mr. Stahl? If cavelling brings you joy, cavell away, Dave. 
No, I love Cavelli. You don't like Cavelli at all? Who doesn't like Cavelli? I'm not a big self-Caveller. I'm more, whatever the opposite of Cavelli is, I that's know. what I tend to do <laughs> yes. regarding myself. Uh, I'm the anti-Caveller. But in terms for other people, I am Caveller number one. So you Caveller in chief. I was worried that if I Cavelled for you, it would make you uncomfortable. Oh, I was uncomfortable before I got on the phone, so I didn't worry about it. <laughs> that's fair enough. And before we go anywhere, I want to say that Jerry Stahl recently wrote a book. It's called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. And um, I was invited to see you speak about this book with movie star and friend of yours, Ben Stiller, by your partner, girlfriend. And it was amazing to see you at the 92nd Street Y with this book. It was amazing and odd to be at the 92nd Street Y, but um, Ben was kind enough to make time. And uh, I was very grateful. And it was great to meet you. I have to say, it was, it was super cool to meet you too. I have to say that I didn't know about the book until I got there. And I was like, holy shit, that sounds like an amazing book. And I was like, this sounds like the perfect summer reading for me. But then well, I, I remembered the 999 was from Permanent Midnight. Well, yes, it is. For those in your audience who uh, may not know, it is nine in the sense of German, N-E-I-N, like no, no, no. Right. It came in a scene from Permanent Midnight, a German woman I was seeing. Uh, we were having sex, as it is colloquially called. And she uh, she had a revelation in the middle of it in which she screamed, nine, nine, nine. I'm being fucked by a Jew. Yes. As one does. And uh, during the movie, fun anecdote, the great Connie Nielsen, a terrific actress, could not bring herself to uh, utter those words very loudly. I think she was a little ashamed. She didn't realize what she was getting into. So it had sort of a different import than just a complete screaming, mad, probably Nazi-adjacent young woman's uh, <laughs> revelation as to, oh, my God, this is what I'm doing. Her, her own joyful fetish of, of fucking a Jew. Now, I have a, the first question I have, and you're on, you know, Dopey is, is probably the greatest show about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. So my first okay. question, not to be humble or anything, but my first question is, in the movie of Permanent Midnight, you have this woman, I think her name is Dagmar, injecting her vagina with heroin, where in the book the two of you shove opium up your assholes and do headstands. Why was that not in the movie? Well, here's the thing. I didn't write the movie. Good. They had a very nice Mormon fellow who had never <laughs> done drugs. Yes. And in the original draft of the movie, there was a, uh, a description for the ages. Jerry shoots up and gets the munchies. So wow. this guy was clearly an expert on the vicissitudes of uh, opium and opiate addiction. So that's why. Did that make you crazy? There was that. You know, of all the things to whine about in the world, somebody getting your book a little off in a movie might be maybe the lamest. So I was very grateful that they did the damn thing. And uh, Ben was fantastic. And he kind of redirected and helped me. Re we, we rewrote a uh, voiceover to insert in the movie. And then on his own dime, he kind of redirected a couple of couple of weekends and changed it around. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm fine with it. And I thought he was spectacular. And we became friends for life. And 
I ended up being best man at his wedding and so on and so forth. That's awesome. He was spectacular. And can I admit something that I'm not proud of, Mr. Stahl? I saw you'd never ask. Okay. And, and this I'm not proud of. I, I, you know, I, I like, we have a lot in common. We have two daughters. We're Jewish. We're recovering heroin addicts. That's a bunch in common, right? More or less. Yeah. Okay. So I, I read a lot of memoirs in my day. I didn't read Permanent Midnight until this summer, but back in mm. the day, I watched the movie, you know, I watched the movie uh, Getting High. I watched the movie Kicking. Mm-hmm. I watched the movie in Early Recovery. And I was always like, why isn't Alf actually in the movie? Why is this Mr. Chomper? I was, and I always got upset about it. And then I read the book and, and, uh, you know, the book is such a masterpiece. It's like, it might be, you know, it's, it's, it, it shot its way up to, uh, forgive the, the pun, but it shot its way up to like one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's incredible. It's probably my favorite drug memoir I've ever read. And I've read a billion of these things. That's very kind of you. I love it. I love this book. It just really captures addiction. Uh, and I love 999. And, and before we even go anywhere further, I spent a bunch of weeks this summer vacationing with my family. I went to, mm. I went to a place in Greenport. We rented an RV and I read and listened to 999, uh, your well, travels. Yes, it was awesome. And then, and then I went to uh, my father's house upstate and I read and listened to Permanent Midnight. So I spent the, mm. this month with you and both mm. books are incredible. I'm also just, I, when I was a kid, I loved Alf. You hate Alf, and I loved Alf. I don't know. I don't hate it. I just, it's always amusing to me that people think I created it, when in fact I wrote like one and a half episodes, barely. But because it was portrayed that way in the movies, it is literally going to say on my tombstone, he only wrote one or two Alfs. I, lo- uh, yeah, you- I don't hate it at all. In fact, I'm very good friends with the guy who created it, who is richer than God, you know, and I should be so lucky. He was a great Jewish sounding alien who ate cats. And as an idiot Jewish kid in New York City, I enjoyed Alf. And, and I just, I'm, I'm getting a little. Well, it's funny you say that. The guy who created it could not be farther from a Jew. Really? Great guy. But about, you know, he's about as Jewish as, you know, Mary Tyler Moore. Who did the voice? I have no idea. The voice had a great Jewy quality to it. You know, we, we can save that for the Alf pod, but I, I really don't remember much about it. Uh, I never like had an office there. I, I just, the guy read a story of mine in Playboy and was friends with my first wife. Uh, I kind of slept my way to the middle. You know, she, I needed a green card. I needed $3,000, you know, I came cheap and, uh, she knew this guy, Tom Patchett and got me that job. Right. One of many, I, I soon self-sabotaged, but, uh, there you go. I'm glad you like it. And I'm glad it, uh, made, you know, made an impression on you. It, it, it's beyond liking it. It's, it's, as, it's as good a book as I've ever read. I also just wonder what it does to you to write this masterpiece about addiction. Does it, does it put you on the track to meet William Burroughs and to meet Keith Richards and all the junkie superstars? Uh, I think it puts you, it heads you in the opposite direction. I mean, you know, all my heroes were junkies, of course, but what you realize is that when you're kicking dope, Keith is not exactly there with a warm towel to tamp your forehead. <laughs> yes. You know, you're kind of on your own. And those guys were great because they were great at being junkies. They survived. They thrived. Uh, you know, I was a fucking mess, you know, by the end. So it's a slightly different arc 
So there isn't, there isn't that like a club of people who have, you know, kind of, I don't want to say earn their fame, but are included in this sort of junky because you had gotten clean by the time the book came out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I relapsed briefly uh, before it got published uh, and then clawed my way back in. I mean, I relapsed a lot, but basically I put it together. And by the time the movie kind of thing, so which was 150 years ago, I was clean and have not had a needle in my neck since. But, uh, you know, I'm almost superstitious about talking about that because I always feel like, uh, you know, if you start banding it about, you're going to curse yourself. I never take it for granted, put it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. I just celebrated seven years and, uh, um, muzzle tough, man. thank you. And I never feel like I'm in the clear at all. You know, I never feel like I'm in the clear. And, and from what I understand of you, you started dabbling with drugs when you were a kid at a, at boarding school or was it before boarding school? No, even before that, it was, that was, yeah, I got shipped away. I had some problems in the family. So I got shipped away for a couple of years. Uh, but no, even when I was a kid, before I'd even ever been drunk, somehow I think I stole my sister's mescaline when I was visiting her in Berkeley or San Francisco and took that. And, you know, like, um, right. You know, I so never even saw that. mescaline. What does mescaline look like? How, how old were you when you found her mescaline? 13 or 14, I guess 14. Uh, it was a brown, kind of crushed up, powdery looking thing. Sort of mix. I think they mixed it with Nestle's Quick back then. But, I, you know, I had it a few different times. And uh, peyote type stuff is they mix up a mushroom. And part of the thing is you, you, you puke violently. And then on the other side of the pukage, you're like, you know, you're seeing God. That's so funny. I had, or, I had or Lucille Ball, as the case may be. Did you see yes. Lucille Ball? I saw God and Lucille Ball, and I got them confused. But I, <laughs> I survived and lived to talk about it. I had Nikki Six once come on the show, and he said, like, he invented adding uh, Nestle Quick to mescaline. He called it Choco Mescaline or something. But that's another story. Someone God, else, God bless him. Someone else said that too. I think uh, the dude, the bass player from No Effects, said he mixed mescaline and Quick for the first time, which I think is it's just oh. awesome. It seems like everybody was mixing mescaline with Quick. How? How? Well, I, I I wasn't. I just found this powder that had a weird chocolatey back flavor to it, you know. So, uh, but I certainly did not invent the combo. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right. I don't it, think I invented anything. Well, I, listen, I think you're too hard on yourself. Um, when do you think you knew you were an addict? I think it's less about knowing you're an addict than knowing you don't feel right in your own skin, you know? And addiction is pretty much the cure for all the symptoms that you're feeling before you even know there's this kind of toxic relief. So I always knew I was uncomfortable and self-conscious, right? kind of self-loathing and full of shame and, you know, all those, all those ingredients that go to manufacture a good addict or alcoholic. Uh, and then once you find something that takes that away, it's not like you say, oh, I'm an addict. It's like, wow, this is what normal people feel, you know? Like, I wasn't looking to see God. I was just looking to, like, ah, you know? I do. Now I can relax. I mean, fairly, it's a different experience. So I, I think, I guess what I'm saying is I think there's a free condition to addiction, which is just uncomfortability, you know? At least speaking for myself, like, I didn't become a junkie on a winning streak. You know what I mean? 
Right. No, I, I felt the same thing. And, and if I'm sure 99 out of 100 addicts we talk to will say that their addiction started with their uncomfortability. I know for me, like uh, the first drug that made me feel incredibly comfortable was weed. And I was like, mm. you know, I was I was so in love with weed. I was like, I found my culture. I found my people. Stonerdom, mm-hmm. stonerdom suited me sure. so well. Yeah. Uh, what, what was it the same for you? Like, what was your first thing that you were well, like, I, I can do this? I, uh, I I remember the first time anybody ever gave me weed. Uh, again, I was uh, I was visiting. Jesus, like I'm indicting my poor sister, who's a wonderful lady. Uh, but I was visiting her and we were at some French guy's house and they gave me a joint. Again, I was like 15, 14 and I started laughing uncontrollably. Then this guy gets a phone call that his father has just died. Mm. And he says, Oh my God, my father just died to which I burst out laughing completely inappropriately, (laughs) mortifying myself, but I couldn't stop laughing. So that was my first experience with weed and uh, off and running. And you came from a difficult, traumatic home and your father died the next year, right? If you did, if you're talking 14, 15, when you're smoking pot. Yeah, he checked out when I was about 16. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't like to say that I had it worse than anybody. You know, every, uh, you know everybody goes through shit. How many people do you know of happy childhoods? You know, the fucked up thing is I kind of had a happy childhood. It's weird. I had mostly a happy childhood. I always say that's, that trauma is a sliding scale. I think that's absolutely true. You that's know. absolutely true. And like my old sponsor, old Hubert Shelby, the greatest dope fiend writer ever, among other things, uh, always used to say that you can't compare pain, which I think is a very astute observation. Right. No, definitely. But I mean, like you came from a place where, I mean, you describe your father and I'm not saying you had it worse than anyone else. I'm just telling, I'm telling the audience hmm. about your origin story. Sure. I'm not yeah. saying you had yeah. it worse than anybody or anything like that, but that your father, you know, immigrated from Eastern Europe from, was it from Poland mm-hmm. or from Russia? Uh, I always thought he immigrated from Lithuania. Yes, and then Lithuania. recently a, a relative came up and said, oh, by the way, we found his passport and it said he was born in Ukraine. So who the fuck knows? Right. All those all those borders were pretty porous back then. But from that region, let's do. He came over when he was ten by himself. In his story, his sad story was he was the only family that didn't have a cow in his old country. Well, his, his mother married a cousin who flew her. Oh, you know, who brought her over. I guess didn't fly when he was two, but he wouldn't pay for him. So this woman had to work in like a grocery store for eight years until she had the money to bring her kid over. So he had eight years over there between two and 10, but he never talked about it. You've got a great memory. Yeah, all he would ever say was two things. One, we were the only family without a cow, which can't be great. And uh, he would never eat stewed tomatoes because that's what they had in steerage on the boat coming over. And your dad was like, you know, arguably a great success. He became the attorney general. Yeah, he made his way from nothing up to a federal judge. And uh, But, you know, he too had that discontent. He was a very laconic man, so who knows what was going on. But uh, whatever, success didn't cure it. And uh, did the old, uh, let's put the garage door down and turn the motor on. 
you know? Back when you could do that, because now that it's unleaded gas, I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to do that. And then they just stagger back into their kitchen the next day with a vicious headache because carbon monoxide isn't what it used to be. You know? Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Just a tip for the listeners. Okay. So if you want to kill yourself, out, yeah. don't do that. No. Yeah. Because you're going to be sorely disappointed and you're just going to wake up feeling like, oh God, I'm embarrassed. You know? And, and your mother was, was a difficult, like she was mentally ill. She had, she had some issues. Yeah. She, uh, <laughs> God bless her. Yes. She was, uh, you know, she was so mean that even my cousins and stuff wouldn't visit. But, and, you know, she did uh, electroshock. Yes. She used to think, I don't know, she's going on vacation or something. And she was getting electroshock, which is a very weird process because it would provide relief. And then it's like the engine runs out. And then gradually she'd become like kind of horrifically unhappy again. One thing you describe in the book is that your mother always drove and your dad had to sit. I think you described it in, in both of these books. Your dad had to sit in the passenger seat and kind of would, would be shamed. But I mean, think about that. Back in the 50s and 60s, not only that, but she would smoke like a proverbial chimney and we weren't allowed to roll the windows down. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was like an early taste of the ovens. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Because ironically, a, yes. before the gas chambers... You know, the Germans, in a weird ecological bent, would just hook a hose up to a tailpipe and drive Jews around uh, and then gas them with carbon monoxide. So we see a theme emerging. Yes, a big connection. But I read about you, your dad not driving, and I don't, I barely mm. drive. My wife drives our family around, and she barely lets me roll down the windows, too. So I was very much. But she doesn't smoke. She no, doesn't no, smoke. No, of course not. She, it's not a monster, Jerry. Yeah, but okay. uh, well, I don't. I'm not judging. You know, I could relate, say. though. Yeah. I could relate, and I and I and I take pride in. Why being don't a, you drive? Why don't you drive? She doesn't want me to drive. I'm from Manhattan. She's from the suburbs. I understand. I'm not yeah, the greatest driver. driver. You didn't exactly. I get it. Listen, man. You know we have challenging back. I never learned how to ride a bike. Nobody ever got little Jerry a bike. So I'm like you know the guy who has to teach his little little girl how to ride a bike by trotting behind her panting like a fucking idiot while, you know, all the other dads are trying, you know, riding alongside their children. So yeah, you know, challenging, challenging backgrounds. Did you ever learn to ride a bike? No, never to this day. It's fun, Jerry. You got to try. Well, you my, my, my girlfriend now is like, look, get a tricycle. There's hipsters on tricycles, but I just think, you know what? I, I feel enough shame just being <laughs> in my own body, being a grown man on a tricycle. I mean, I might as well have a little hat with a propeller on it, you know, like a total mook. So I haven't manned up. I like that you describe it like a total mook. I want to go to LA and get you a bike and run behind you. Mm. I want to do that okay. for you, Jerry. Like if, if, you if, wouldn't have to run very far because I would fall right over. What uh, do I do? Where do I do it where I don't feel like an idiot? Three o'clock in the morning in like a, you know, a grocery store parking lot, I guess. They could do it. But then you're the cops are going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? You, you know? come out here. We go to the, I, I moved to the suburbs. Everyone learns. Good to you. Where, do you, where do you live, man? I live in Saville, New York, which is 50 oh, miles nice. east from. Oh, nice. That's my dream. Is that on Hudson? No, it's on the Great South Bay. Oh, nice. It's pretty. Oh, I would so love to live there. It's pretty nice. It's like, I never yeah. thought I would like oh, it. Oh, that sounds great. And, but you have money, right? You bought a house, right? My parents, my my oh, wife's my here wife's parents bought the house. You married well. No, no, you married they, well. They put the the money down, and I pay them back every month. 
Like it's a mortgage. Yeah, it's a good deal. It's a nice little house. Uh, and now, do you, do you make your money at Katz's or do you make it off the podcast? Uh, or do you I, have a third, a third revenue? Or is your wife a, a very successful woman? No, my wife hasn't worked in years. I make, I make probably, I don't know, uh, about half at Katz's, maybe a little more than half, half. at Katz's and a little bit less than half, half at Dopey. Okay. Wow. You know, it's, I, I feel like I'm the only person in America over like 12 who doesn't have a podcast. Well, if you had a podcast, I would listen to it every week. Oh, I, I started one for a while, had one, uh, got a few in the can. But, you know, when you're like best friends with Merritt, it's like, really? My best friend's Keith Richards. Do I want to start a band? You know you, what I mean? You saw Marin did that podcast with his other best friend, the, the, the comic guy. Did you see that podcast? Oh, oh, uh, bad Fonzie. Is that what it's called? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, uh, you should have done one. You should get him to do one with you. And then nah. he'll, then he'll you know resent what? I'm you. Not, I'm not, <laughs> well, uh, that can be arranged, but, uh, I, 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 am not great at asking for favors. Yeah. You know? And, and then, and then it's, we get, can... it's one of the interest, the intricacies of being good friends with massively with stars essentially is, you know, how you stay friends. You don't ask him for shit. Right. You're just friends, you know, which is a good rule of life anyway. You know what I mean? And especially being an ex-dope fiend, when you cadged everyone you knew for everything, I'm going to pay you back Thursday. You know how that goes. So I'm I'm very careful and a little self-conscious about taking favors now. I think Marin's not my friend because I beg him for favors all the time. Like, oh, oh he God. loves you. He had you on a show. You wouldn't be on a show if he didn't like you. I know. I, and that, was, I, I, that was a great episode. It was decent. It was fun. I was, I was scared to death. And I also like had kind of PTSD going back to LA because when I was in LA, mm. I was such a bad junkie. And I was, I, I totally just, get it, man. I was not well when I went back. I, just seeing the yeah, mountains, yeah. I was terrified. No, it's all, it's all a trigger. I see a blue sky and it's like, Oh, danger. You know, I mean, I just don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why I still live here, but I, I had to make a move fast. You know, things went kind of south, had to sell the house, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, here we are. So after your, your dad died, does mm. your, does your drug use double down? Like, does it increase? Is this interesting for your fans hearing this, this stuff? That's a good question. I, I can, I, I, I can go deep. Yeah. You know, did, did my drug, I was already so high. I, I did, I think my senior year, well, actually my senior year, my father was already dead. I, I was getting high a lot before him, not on opiates. However, uh, I think it was like weird shit, like Darvon and LSD and, you know, just garbage head shit when you're a kid. Whatever well, you isn't Darvon, on, you know? Darvon's opiates though, right? I don't think so. I mean, I listen, think it is. Uh, I think it's like an opiate derivative. You, you could, have your assistant Google. I don't. But, okay. Um, yeah, assistant, could you Google what, Darvon, please? We, we we can, you know, do like uh, like Saul, better call Saul, where he, he fakes an assistant's voice, or like Trump used to do. Remember when Trump had that fake person who would call in and uh, place pieces and and page six. Jerry, if you want to start a podcast with me, we call it Better Call Stall, and it's you and me nice. complaining. Oh. What do you think? Better Call Stall, the podcast about I, complaining and faking assistance well, and such. That's a great title. You know, it's funny. A lot of my books started because I had a title, like <laughs> I Fatty. I just loved the title. And 999, loved the title. Permanent Midnight was originally called Bad Liver, weirdly enough. 
which yeah. turned out to be the name of a up and coming band from Austin, the band Livers. So I had to change it and somehow came up with the long, dark night of a beautician with permanent midnight. I don't think you ever say the phrase permanent midnight in permanent midnight. Nah, that would be hokey. You think that'd be hokey. It's funny. Cause nine, nine, nine. Well, I, did, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know what it was called. Listen, I'm letting you distract me here. We had a really deep question Please. where you asked me if my fans would want to hear you go deep. We started to get weed, LSD, Darvon, mm. post your father's yeah. death. Oh, post my father. Yeah. Yes. I'm, you know what? I, I am, I, I, you know, I have a little, uh, I have some focus issues in my dotage. So that's on me, ladies and gentlemen. I'm with you. Did I do more drugs afterwards? Of course. I mean, the thing of it was, and this is a hard truth to admit, but when my father did what he did, I think my first emotion was relief because suddenly I had an excuse to feel the way I had felt my whole life. But now I could be like that guy's, you know, the dead guy's kid. And uh, it was like, oh, of course, you know. So you sort of can milk that for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my mom died when I was 35 and, uh, and I was using and, and, and it was just before mm-hmm. my wife got pregnant. And, and I, feel mm, guilty that's to a combo. Say, I feel guilty about saying this, but I had some relief that I was, free, I was free of that. Sure, yeah. So, so I think that's just being human, man. But these are hard things to admit. But in most art and most books and most anything, what I love, you know, people who say the unsayable. You know, it's like the great Bruce J. Friedman said, if you write a sentence that makes you squirm, keep going. And what you just said, a little squirmy, but it's a great truth. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Right. Um, and, and you wind up starting to write a ton of weird porno stuff. Yeah, I, I was a journalist for many years. And I also wrote like for Beaver magazine, not to brag, uh, Tang with a country twang. You know, they would give really catchy titles. And then I wrote the fake sex letters for Penthouse Forum for a while. Club International, you know, you name it. How old were you at that point? uh, I was about early 20s, you know, 21, 22, still going to college. Uh, Then I dropped out of college. You went to to Columbia. I did, yes. Uh, Columbia and Harlem on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Not the South American country, no. So, and that was a big... That would have been much interesting. Did you, was it, was there a little like beatnik... (laughs) <laughs> enamored beatnik shit, William Burroughs shit in, in going to Columbia? Was that built in at all? I just wanted to be in New York. But, you know, here's the thing. Punk was happening. Everything was happening. But, you know, I, I'm just a perpetual outsider, man. You know, I, I, I wasn't part of a scene. I, a guy I went to grade school with was an early drummer for Blondie and then had a bad LSD experience, which he blamed me for and ended up going back to Pittsburgh and like, I don't know, working in a garbage can factory or doing something, uh, some sort of odd industrial chemist and always tragically blamed me. But that was as close as I got to the punk scene. Wait, how did he you blame know? you? Did, I gave him some LSD. Did he, a great guy. Did he blame you for, for not becoming the a drummer with Blondie? Well, he was temporarily, but then he had a, a bad accident, a bad Trip. You know, a bad drug thing and ended up uh, somehow back in 
back in Pittsburgh. Wow. You know, what can I say? We're always looking for people to blame. I mean, that's the human condition, right? Yeah. And except as we get older, I mean, I, I'm, I'm more of a self-blamer. You know right. what I mean? Right. I like to blame my father just for the comedy of it. Like my dad is- If a very, it helps. He, he, I, I do it because he listens to the show. He's, uh-huh. he's a 70. What's his name? His name is Alan. He's often on the show. Hi, Alan. He's a, Hello, Alan. he's a 78 year old Jew from uh, the Lower East Side and Queens. And, uh, so he's, a, he's a good sport. He's a good sport. He's a glutton for punishment is what he is. But I want to hear about your twenties in New York. Cause that I think probably sets the stage for your lifelong addictness in a way has to, right? It, it does though. I was not, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I, I, I mean, I did dope and stuff in New York, but I didn't get massively strung out until I got to Los Angeles. I, I thought perhaps I, I took a gig because I wanted to get out of New York. I thought it would help me get off drugs. So I went from New York to, of all places, Columbus, Ohio, lived in a YMCA. Again, there I go bragging because I was working at Hustler as a humor editor. And what that basically meant is people would send in vaginally shaped rutabagas from Wisconsin and I would write snappy patter, you know, about them for the pages of Hustler. Known for its humor, as we all know. When's the first time you said snappy patter? About five minutes ago. Oh, stop it. You're the king. I lo- I mean, I love that you say snappy patter. I think you should write a, a book called Snappy Patter, a memoir. I'm going to shut up well, with my ideas. Well, you also think we should do a podcast called Better Call Stall. Better Call Stall. a great idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> a little derivative. But little. I mean, if you want to do it, I'll jump in. Let's do it. Let's come up with something. But back to you, and you're working in Hustler. You're living at the Y. My first thought is one of my favorite parts of Permanent Midnight is in the third third of the book where you meet, you meet the guy in San Francisco <laughs> who lives in the single residence occupancy room. Oh, that guy. Yeah, the old jazz guy. And you see his room and you say, it's just enough room for four walls and a needle. I know, I found my home. And I'm wondering wondering if that first day at the Y was that simplicity feeling also. (laughs) Uh, The Y was not great, no, (laughs) because uh, there were group showers Yes. And a lot of the guys in the group showers had something called brown lung disease from working in the coal mines. Wow. So you'd be, you know, bad enough you're taking a shower with a bunch of, you know, old guys with, you know, testicles down to their kneecaps. But they would be like hawking up these just ungodly goobers, you know, while you're trying to shower off before you're day writing funny bits and pieces for hustlers. So it was an experience. And you tell that funny story about, uh, what's his face? Oh, Larry Flint. It's okay. Larry Flint, sure. who sets up the, the miniature Southern Appalachia cabin in his, God, in isn't his, that great? He recreated his home in his basement. What was he like? What was that? What was that experience like at Hustler for you? I met a lot of, oddly enough, incredibly creative people. I mean, needless to say, it was grotesque. You know, he had a, uh, Larry, <laughs> he had an assistant and driver named Ollie who had one of the first kind of lap band things, you know, one of those. Yeah, tummy, yeah. So he loses like 200 pounds, but the side effect and or benefit is you'd be in an elevator with him and he would literally fart for like five and a half minutes <laughs> and you, and you just go up and down. 
because he was a really big guy. He couldn't say, yeah, I get it. You can fart. Nice. Can I leave now? No, you had to do the whole thing, you know? Right. So uh, it's like that old David Cross joke about magicians. Yeah, I get it. That's my card. Can I go home now? And and uh, the Larry Flint's wife. Althea. Althea was a classic junkie character, right? She became one. I didn't know her very well, but... To answer your question, I mean, I met a guy I'm still friends with, Stephen Sadian, a.k.a. Rinse Dream. And, you know, we went on to do uh, the failed porn movie, Cafe Flesh, which, you know, we drove patrons out to the streets screaming, but then succeeded as a uh, midnight movie, replacing Pink Flamingos, and then Dr. Caligari. And, you know, he's a very creative guy. And Larry gave this guy free reign to run his entire ad camp all his ad campaigns and ad parodies at like 20 so the interesting thing about places like that is a bunch of people who are too sort of psychically deformed to work other places are allowed to do their own weird creative thing there and you know something good can come out of that Uh, you know bizarre and tasteless as it is in the moment and that was also how you got to la right that is yeah it moved to la i got fired six months to the day of uh, signing on right on unemployment and I was fired by Paul Krasner of all people who took over as editor didn't get along that well I was an arrogant bastard and uh yeah then I just did journalism for a lot of years and staggered back into show business and and as you're staggering and writing what's the Mm -hmm. what's what's the addiction look like like what's the using when did heroin not non-stop non-stop Man, I, I was just all day long. Eventually, I mean, I, I, I would go to, I was working like, I think like Fox Studio. But the thing about Permanent Midnight is, if you read the book, like being a TV writer is like 7% of my life and the book. But in the movie, they focused on that. So it looks like, oh my God, he's a yuppie gone bad, you know, which is kind of mortifying. But uh, that's how it shook down. But uh, I eventually stopped doing any kind of work at all. It was just like a full-time get up in the morning and try to get your bag money, you know. When did you, fall in, when did you fall in love with heroin? Uh, I remember doing it the first time, actually, with the guy we just talked about, my uh, running buddy, Steve, young genius. And, uh, you know, gradually it sneaks up on you, and pretty soon you realize you're driving around with a fucking needle in your sock. And, uh, you know, buying a lot of balloons, which I don't, I don't know if you can relate to on the East Coast. No, I, li- Coast, I lived Carolina. in L.A. and I bought a shitload okay, of balloons. Okay, so you, you know about balloons. It's very festive, very colorful. Very colorful. And, uh, yeah, your, your multicolored selection of balloons in the street of generally often gang members who are under 18 so that they don't have to worry about going out to an adult prison. And, uh, you know, they spit them into their hand and then you get home and it would be a piece of twine or it would turn out to be just a chunk of Johnson and Johnson shoe polish and you'd shoot it up anyway. Cause Hey, there might be heroin in it. There might be, there might be a little bit of heroin in it. Absolutely. And in the meantime, you can buff your shoes. So it all worked out. Did you put the balloons in your mouth? Uh, if I had to, you know, if the cops were following me, sure. Yeah. You put them right in your mouth. I mean, I didn't at first. You know, because mm. I'm a New Yorker and you don't put bags in your mouth in New York. But uh, as, as soon as I thought, as soon as I learned that was the thing, I did it every day and I can feel it right now. You're, this is, you know, 
10 years out, 14 are you years out. A sense, are you having a sense memory? I'm having a sense memory of the warm, mm. wet latex in my mouth, under yeah. my tongue, rolling around. Mm. The joy that I would feel driving away from downtown. The, 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 mm -hmm. Just that incredible joy. I want to read a bit from uh, Permanent Midnight for a second, kind of about where you're talking about when you were this TV writer who was, you know, uh, making a shitload of money and shooting dope. Can I read a little bit? Of course. I remember my first or second shift at MTM seeing the clean white low top tennis shoes I recognized as Mr. Zwick's doing the men's room dance from sink to urinal, urinal to sink, while I, on the other side of the stall door, clenched that sleeve in my teeth and softly, lovingly, secretly eased the needle into my throbbing vein watched with awe and reverence as the blood from my own body flowed back and up the blessed needle. Then I pressed down gently, shoved the poppy nectar, now stained red, slow as glacial erosion into my bloodstream and off on its holy journey north to heart and onward, upward to the waiting portals of my brain where the high priest waited, welcoming the latest flagrant sacrifice to the God of solitude the God of strangeness, the God of sweet and terrifying and secret ecstasy, while Ed Zwick shook his dick and hummed the theme from Exodus three feet away. At least I think oh. it happened, but I was on drugs. I mean, Jerry. Well, let me tell you something. First of all, let me use this opportunity to make an amends to Ed Zwick, very nice man, I doubt that he ever hummed Exodus <laughs> while sure. shaking his dick. What is the thing from I'm Exodus? Sure, what is it? I'm not going to hum it because I have no music, but it's... I'll Google it. That's about as much as I can okay. give you. Okay, okay. But uh, yeah, I, I felt bad for years. I mean, the guy does not like me, and I don't blame him, because he wants to be a character in somebody else's drama in some made-up fucking situation. But I tried to hedge my bets by saying, hey, I was on drugs. Well, that, I mean, that is just... Very nice guy, very successful, went on to have a huge career, and God bless. Do you remember that? I mean, I, I was a, a very low-end producer at MTV, my first run, mm. my first run of using, and I would mm -hmm. shoot dope in the bathroom. And I shot dope at a bathroom in LA at, at a weird TV show called Nine on the Town, and I would do what you, you mm. described, a, a picnic blanket of needles and balloons and dope <laughs> at, at your feet. And I had the same thing. It's like that writing is just ridiculously perfect, just so beautiful. It's triggering in a way, even with years and years away from the poppy flower, the poppy nectar. Do you remember writing it? And how does it make you feel? No, I don't. That is, that is such lush writing. I don't even know that I would allow myself to write that flamboyantly now. I don't know who that guy was. <laughs> but boy, he was he was really riding the adjectives, riding them hard. He was he was feeling it. He was feeling that loving that loving throb. Talk, mm -hmm. talk. Let's hear about like that was a crazy period in your life because, like you said, your your wife at the time paid you to marry her for a green card you guys had feelings for each other and, and wound up fucking here and there. And she got pregnant. And she got me the job at the, on that gig, 30 something. 
So there's that. Uh, yeah, I, I owe that woman a huge amends uh, as well. But, you know, that's why we, if we don't die young, we have the rest of our life to do a living amends. Right? Jerry, did you make an amends to her? Uh, I tried to do the thing where I'm just as good a person I can be. And we're actually very good friends now. Okay. And she's good friends with the one I live with. So it kind of worked out. But, you know, there was some bad times. I mean, I'm sure you as a junkie can appreciate this scenario where it's like you're getting a call from a bank that somebody is using your wife's ATM card to draw $40 out every day. And you go down to the bank and you're talking to the bank manager. It's like, I can't believe what kind of low life would, you know? And then of course they show the video and it's you. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I taking felt- the 40 out every day. That is, you know, that is some archetypal junkie mortification. And I hope you can't relate. Well, when I was in LA, I had a girlfriend and I would steal her ATM every morning and live mm. on it. But I would tell her. There you go. My I, kind of guy. I would My tell, kind of guy. But I would tell her later in the day. I would be like, oh, I took your ATM uh, card again. And and like, I how, how long do you think you lived with her and she didn't know? That's a very good question because I think ultimately, doesn't everybody know yes. all the time? Yes. Even if they don't know the particulars. It's like you get clean, you make an amend. It's like, oh, you know, by the, and they're like, yeah, I knew, asshole. You weren't kidding anybody. Of course. And then, and then when the baby comes, you're still strung out. Yeah, strung out in the uh, OBGYN men's room. Well, you know the scene. I mean, need, need I tell you that I had never worn short sleeves and they say put on scrubs and then you know, just, I just shut up and I get there. And I'm, they put scissors in my hand and I'm supposed to cut the umbilical and the doctor looks at me like there's blood dripping out of the crook of my arm. It's like, you know, but that's where that baby has to live with you as a father. I might as well shove her back in. But the good news is, is my uh, my older daughter is not a cyclops. I managed to uh, cut the umbilical without, you know, poking her eye out. And you shot, the little things, but Dave. You shot up though while while your wife was giving birth, or right before. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. You write these things because when you're writing it as a journalist, this odd phenom happens where either you're a complete sociopath or you just find a way of externalizing the event and describing it. But then you realize, oh, wait, this is real people here. You know, these are actual real-life people you're describing. And this is horrific. Was it like a big problem? Well, I mean, imagine you have been victimized, fucked over, mistreated by this junky asshole who is suddenly celebrated for all the bullshit that ruined your life. You know, given money, they're going to make a movie. And it's like, how would you feel? I didn't think about that at the time, but uh, I don't, I don't think it was great. Like I say, we get along now, but you know, a little rough in the beginning for sure. But like, let me ask you this. Obviously you came up. I had a great person. I mean, I have nothing but good things to say. So I, you know, because a lot of people get clean. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this has to be said. You know, the people you fuck over are not the assholes. You're the asshole. Of course. Of course. Please continue. No, and I want you to interrupt as much as you see fit. Because sometimes I need to be interrupted. A hundred percent. Don't we all? I want to say so many things at the same time. The first thing I want to say is 
another thing we have in common is that when my wife was pregnant, I had heroin in my pockets when we went to birth classes. When my first daughter was born, I wasn't shooting up in the other room, but I ran home. I didn't spend the night in the hospital. I ran home saying I needed to get the house cleaned when, in fact, I needed to get high, you know. Uh, my kind of guy. And, yeah, well, at least you cleaned the house. I don't think I did clean the house. I, mm. And uh, And my wife found me. We had a baby that was four or five months. And my wife found me in the other room with a needle in my lap and she left. Uh, but, but the other thing that's similar is that when my wife found out about Dopey, I had kept Dopey a secret. And she was like, how can you put this on Front Street when it destroyed our lives? You know what I mean? Which was very similar. Now, I just wanted to give you that information so you know the kind of show you're on and you know that I can really relate. Mm -hmm. I can really relate to your story. But when, mm -hmm. when Permanent Midnight comes out, you had been a very successful screenwriter, TV writer, journalist. Yeah, moderately, moderately. I mean, I, I fell into show business. I didn't realize how lucky I was. I just wanted to write books. It's like what uh, Willie Loman's neighbor said in Death of a Salesman at his funeral. He had all the wrong dreams. Would that I knew what a great opportunity I was having with TV and such. But, you know, maroon that I was, I just wanted to write fucking novels, books. That was always my dream. But that's really where I'm going with this. When Permanent Midnight came out, your dream had come true. You had not only, mm -hmm. and not only did you have this book, you had this masterwork of addiction and darkness. And yes, it must have been hard for the woman who you called Sandra in the book but was it, did you feel guilty? Did you feel proud? What was it like when this book hits the streets? It was surreal. And I was not evolved enough as a human to feel as guilty as I later felt. But I subsequently came to realize this is a brutal thing to do because people are real. They're not characters in a fucking book, but... There's this phenom, like I say, that takes place when you're writing where you forget that you're dealing with actual flesh and blood people. And if, like me, you're an embellisher and an over-describer, and uh, I think that happened, but I might have made it up, but I think it happened, but right. I was on dope, and you're, you have all these extraneous weird circumstances, it can be tricky. I understand that. You know, how did you, uh, one of my other favorite things that you describe in the book is fatherhood and how, how desperate, cause I, I could relate to how desperately you wanted to be a dad over being a junkie mm -hmm. and, and how did you, how did you manage it? And how did you, uh, how did you manage it first? You try to juggle, you know, I just, no matter what I was going through, I tried to show up when I said I was going to show up. And that's about as much as I can say for myself, you know. And, uh, you know, I eventually got my shit together. But the marriage obviously didn't last. But uh, you'd have to talk to my older daughter, who is an amazing, beautiful, smart, successful woman. But no picnic having me as a dad. Right. How old was she when you got clean? Uh, you know, I'm bad with names and dates. Okay. Um, pretty young. Right, 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 right. And you describe, you know, are you good with chronology? 
I don't. I, I'm good with chronology for the past seven years, for the most part. Before good. that, before that, I have nothing. I have. I, I took so many benzos that uh, I think I have like shrunken brain holes in my brain. I have a very hard time remembering stuff. And I didn't write. I wasn't like you. I wasn't writing all the time. I was, but what I like to do was tell stories. So I have, you know, 15, mm-hmm. 20 stories that I told so many times that they're tattooed in my memory as the story that I told. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and who knows if that's the real story or not. One of my other that's favorite. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. How, like I, I want to do one more bit from your book from Permanent Midnight before we get out of this book because it's it's just so good. And if I don't do if I don't let the audience hear your incredible writing, I would have I would feel guilty. So I just want to read this part. And this is a part of the book where uh, you had been going back and forth to Arizona mm. to get to, in, in sobriety, and you and you met that young lady Kitty, I think her name was. Mm-hmm. You're trying to be sober and you're trying to have her think you're sober. And this is a very graphic part. Uh, I'm just going to read it. And uh, you and you, you're basically going down on her. And she says, Jerry, Jesus, her gasps sound far away. I'd closed her thighs on my ears, held her flesh pressed into me. Let her own warm flesh block out the world. That's all I wanted to block out the world. I didn't even lick her. Not at first. I just pushed. That's all. I just pushed my face into her labia, jammed my mouth, my nose, eyes, as much of me as I could into the wet beyond, up and down, back and forth, sideways and no ways, and inside out. I managed at last to find perfect blackness, soft, hot blackness, where all I had to do was breathe. All I had to do was move my mouth, my lips, but slowly now, slowly, almost not at all, until her fingers were tearing into my hair, ripping at the back of my head, pulling, pumping, tugging. Yes, I thought, hearing a distant droning, some muffled supplication. Yes, finally, I'm lost. At last, I'm fucking lost. But then, ouch, what the fuck? And I feel like in that, that yes, I'm lost, when you're describing being in between Kitty's legs is addiction, is escape. When I read that, I was like, this is addiction. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I am both sorry and gratified that you can relate. <laughs> I mean, but I feel like that's still the thing. I, I can get lost eating cookies at night or ice cream. Mm-hmm. I, I look to get lost. I, I, and that's, I guess, why meditation is such a big part of recovery sure. to get lost. Uh, how, how important was getting lost to you in, in, in your, in your world of, of using? Well, I, I think the answer to that, people would ask like, what's your favorite drug? And I always say out, right. I just want to be out. Right. And for you, if it's cookies, whatever, man, just get me out of my fucking head. Cause I don't want to be there. And if you can rewire yourself and attain peace, and, you know, I've had glimpses of that. I've had periods of that. But I realized a while ago, Dave, you know, I I don't know that I will ever be happy. But what I don't want is to make you or anybody else unhappy. You know what I mean? Like my mother would walk into a room, God bless her, and suddenly everybody in the room would be like, 
ah, shit, I, I, I kind of hate myself. I feel, what the fuck? And really, she had the world's most annoying superpower, which is she could walk in a room and everybody would suddenly be uncomfortable and feel like shit. And that was the vibe. And I just don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, but I, I think, I think uh, when I read- Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask, Dave? Well, let, what do you think you give to your daughters? Oh, you know, I don't know. You know, you just, I just want to make them laugh. I think sometimes that's the best you can do. I mean, that's, that's the best you can do sometimes. Well, that's showing just, love. There's a great scene in your new book in 999 when you're in the death camp and your four-year-old daughter calls you and all you want to do is make her laugh on the phone. You know, there you go. And, yeah. and it's like, it's so beautiful. And I can totally, I, I mean, like, that's the thing. I think that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on the show, because I can so relate to all of these things, you know, be that word lost, getting lost in addiction. I could totally relate to. And, and what you just said about your mother, you, you want to bring love and, and, and happiness to the, to, I mean, like, listen, that, that might be a big, big phrase for you. Well, for at me. least not make them unhappy, you know, at least not make them feel bad. Cause that's how I grew up with just feeling like shit because I grew up with somebody whose job is to make you feel like shit. So you don't want to be that. And, you know, I don't know how you feel as a parent, but I think when it comes to parenting, my, my rule of thumb is, you know, you try to fuck them up the opposite way you were fucked up. Right. And hopefully it lands somewhere in the middle. Yes. I, I was actually reading 999 and I would take breaks from reading 999 and spend time with my children. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, and my older daughter nice. wanted to swim across the lake at my dad's house upstate. So I go to swim across the lake with her. Uh, and I, you know, and it's a pretty big lake and she's a great swimmer and I'm just trying to keep up with her my dad wound up kayaking with us when we swam mm -hmm. and I made it in my mind that I wasn't going to hold on to the kayak at all. I was going to make it. And my daughter, you know, she basically was doing like the crawl stroke the whole way and she would get tired mm -hmm. and she would grab the kayak when she was out of breath and then she would start swimming fast and she got across mm -hmm. the lake much faster than I did. And when I got mm. to the other side of the lake, she was like, she was like, daddy, I beat you. And I was like, yeah, but you had to hold on to grandpa's boat three times. Like I was the biggest asshole. I was my father, you know, giving me a hard time. And she got upset and I regretted that I was fucking her up probably the same way that I got fucked up, which is exactly what you just described not to do. But we wound up making. Well, yes, you wound up making what? Peace. I, and I apologize. Well, that's good. I made an amend uh, to her mm -hmm. right, right away because I don't want to fuck her up the same way that I was fucked mm -hmm. up. Totally understandable, man. And sometimes maybe the gift you can give them is showing them how not to be. Right. You know, it sounds like you're a great dad. and Sometimes. It sounds great that you've got like lakes and summer houses. and No, Jerry, I mean, Jerry. Damn, no, man, no, it's no. great. I'm cavelling on your behalf. Listen, it's wonderful. I want you to come out east. Come, come, come back east. You can come. We'll take you to, I'll take you on the ferry to Fire Island. I'll teach you how to ride a bike by uh, the pines. Oh, wow. Look at you. We'll do it that up. That I never had. We'll, we'll, Thanks, man. I'll do well, it. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll do that after, uh, after we establish uh, Better, Better Call, Call Stall. Stall. Which now that I think of it, you know, the trouble with joke titles is 
after the first couple times, it's like, yeah, you know. Dopey was it. kind of a joke title, and I'm doing it seven years. Well, you like that title? God bless. You don't like it? I think you're selling yourself a little short. Okay, I want to hear about this. But I want to get to 999, but first tell me why. No, I, th I think because, like many of us do, I think we're afraid to take ourselves seriously. Now, Dopey, what I think of is the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, lots of people do. So I, I got, well, it's not the most original. So I got completely confused. But it's a great title in its way. And uh, who am I to judge, man? You know, titles are hard. It's like Raymond Carver said, you know, a book is the house and a title is the roof. Book is the house and the title is the roof. We called it dopey because I imagine my grandfather being like, look at this fucking dope. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like when I you, totally get that, you know, like which is a great backstory. And now I get it. Like when I totally get that. it's like when we do heroin and we call it dope or when hip hop people is like, yo, that shit is dope, meaning it's cool. But my grandfather was like, this guy's a fucking dope. So that was, that was the, the, the origin. And I, I like it, but I don't like it when people are like, here's dopey Dave. You know, I don't love that. That that always you makes me feel. It. Yeah, you I, asked for it. When Chris, my when my partner was alive, I wasn't Dopey Dave. It wasn't a thing because it was Dave and Chris. Mm. And then when Chris died, uh, it became Dopey Dave. It wasn't Dopey Dave. That had to be very hard for you. When he died, or when I became Dopey Dave. When he died. Yeah, it was terrible. It's terrible. Ter was, I mean, was, I'm really sorry you went through. I mean, who just started the show, right? He died like two years into it. Like, oh like, like two years into it, he died and it was, it was crazy. But before we start going on some weird dopey tangent, I want to talk about 999 yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit. I appreciate you talking sure, about man. dopey. I think that's really nice. And I know I'm quelling, over quelling, overselling. I don't care. Both of these books were incredible for me to read. I find your style mm -hmm. to be incredibly relaxing and, uh, and, and just very close to me. Like, I feel like it's very warm. I found it way more relaxing. Oh, I love hearing. I think that is the greatest compliment I have ever received. Yeah. That is fantastic. And I felt that 999 is, is a story uh, where, where you got, did you go to Vice or did Vice go to you? No, I went to Vice, a uh, friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. My friend, uh, Jeff Fernside, who's a uh, documentary filmmaker he did this thing called the devil and daniel johnston which won in sundance yeah blah, yeah blah, yeah, blah. yeah I he, he and i did a movie together that had the great title the bay of leader that got changed to chuck you know just a little griping uh, about uh the great white hope chuck wepner the only man to knock muhammad Ali down and long story short he knew a guy advice why i'm stringing the story out i don't know i like talking to you and I wanted to go over there, but I needed to have somebody finance me. So I, I got them to do a six-part series. But as you may have noticed, if you read the six-part series, there's not there's none of me in it. You know, it's just kind of the description of the trip and almost like a travelogue with none of the interior monologue. So it's a completely different deal. So like the the inner monologue that happened while you were touring the concentration camps. You you had written a book called OG Dad, and the OG stood for old guy, which I love. What does OG and OG gangster stand for? Original gangster. Original gangster, old guy dad. It, it's it's a term of respect. Absolutely. 
And uh, OG Dad was about you being an older man with a younger daughter. And a younger wife. And a younger wife. Young, pretty, smart wife is what you describe in 999. Yeah, very, very talented, smart uh, woman. But not smart enough not to marry me, sadly. But uh, these things happen. And And they they want to option OG Dad into a TV show. Yeah, ABC, possibly the dumbest thing I've ever done. (laughs) A fucking network decided they wanted to make a TV show out of it and uh, to, as they say, take it off the table. But the catch is they hadn't actually read the book because why would you? Because reading is so not a podcast, which is where they heard about the book on, uh, on my friend Mark Mary's show. Right. So they read the book and first of all, I start reading and they're horrified. And then they talk to me and they're even more horrified. So you know, it just didn't end well. I was paid not to write, as sometimes happens. Well, that seems like a, it, it, it. I think that would be a good gig for me, but not the greatest gig for you. Not the greatest gig for anybody, really. But, you know, uh, what the hell? You take what you can get in this world. But you're going through it while you're traveling in German and Poland, going from camp to camp. And, and one of the one of the. Uh, the notes you get from this sensitive ABC producer is, can we make Jerry a little less creepy? Yes. I uh, had the really, really bad sense. You know how you think like, oh, this could be the phone call. I'm just going to answer this. But you know, I'm walking out of the fucking oven. Here. Why would I answer the phone? But I did. And the first thing I said is, uh, yeah, can, can you make Jerry less creepy? And then I'm trying to explain to him that I had this idea, why don't we make this show about a guy who has to write a show about the making of Ilsa, She Rules of the SS, which is shot, and this is a true story, on weekends on the set of Hogan's Heroes. Brilliant. And I said, and, and by the way, I happen to be at like Buchenwald right now. And he's like, where are you? Bloomingdale's? Yes. You know, and it was just, it, it just, uh, Look, I'm not a great raconteur, but trust me, it was a horrifying moment. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, in, in the reading of the book, my favorite idea is the TV show about the guy who has the failed marriage who has to write the TV show about his successful <laughs> about, family. Like, right? I, I, Comedy I, gold, right? I, I love that. I, and I don't know why that should be off the table. Personally, Forget. Uh, I mean, better. I own it again. It, it's it's back on the table. I yeah. mean, I could do that, but you know, I don't have agents. I don't have anybody out there. So you know, if anybody's listening and thinks that's comedy gold, hey, well, why not? This is not WTF. No, very few people are listening. It's not going to happen. But my three notions: number one, better call stall. I'll be your co-host. Number two, sure. The meta but OG. Stop right there. Yes. Stop right there. Yes. Do you really want to be my co-host on Better Call Stall? I would, you know, I would do it if you would that, do it. You, that could that could sink your career. Please, I don't. I, I work at a deli, Jerry. <laughs> I work at a deli. I work at the greatest deli. Somebody could. You, I love cats. I love cats. Are you kidding me? How do you love cats if you don't eat meat? Because cats is cats. You can go in there and have like a fucking sour cream and cottage cheese sandwich. You could. It's the best. You know, I, I waited I mean, tables. Where else on earth do they serve that? I, I mean, I'm sure there's, I bet you Cantor's, I bet at all those weird fake delis in Los Angeles and all these places. 
But uh, it's not even about the meat. It's about the experience. Cats, yes. Man. You know, it's, it's there. Years ago, I waited tables there. I waited tables there for 11 years. And there was this mm. kindly lady, a Midwesterner, the kind of lady who was probably on your bus tour. And she mm -hmm. asked me for a vegetarian Reuben. Okay. And, uh, and I, of oh, course, no. and I, of course, you know, gave her the business and I was like, you're an idiot. You can't do a vegetarian Reuben. And, and then she kind of like touched my heart. There was something about her that I really liked, which never happened or rarely happened when I waited tables. So what I did was I had them make a grilled Swiss cheese on rye and I had them add <laughs> Russian and sauerkraut. And it was actually a nice looking vegetarian root. Sounds good. It yeah, was, it sounds was, good. It was the only time I ever did that. And it was, uh, it was one of those moments. And one of my favorite things about the book, which is interesting, I don't know what you're gonna think about this, like as a as a 48-year-old New York City Jew who grew up hearing stories about the Holocaust, my knowledge of the Holocaust is very weak. I was not like I, I did not study. I did I didn't have your uh, you know, fet fetishistic or you know, just your whatever, your your interest in in World War II and the Holocaust. So I learned a ton about the camps, Nazis, what happened over there in your book. But what I loved in the book is how you related to the people on the tour with you. Like it, it just was, it, cause you seemed so lonely and isolated and yet you allowed yourself to have these little relationships with these strangers on the road. How, how did it function for you? It's an interesting phenomenon, but I think writers in a way are kind of like leopards in the sense that you're the outsider in the community as the result of which members of the community can tell you anything because right. you're sort of like you're outside the fold so as the result of being like the weirdo writer guy you know throw veggie guy in the mix everybody kind of confided in me and i grew to love these people about whom i was admittedly superficially judgmental at the outset and i grew to love these like retirees and you know, an old Jewish Trump lover, you know, and I just, I ended up just loving these people as, you know, it's like that old uh, Jonathan Swift thing. You know, I loathe mankind, but love every Tom, Dick and Harry. You know, I, I ended up being a, a Tom, Dick and Harry lover. Right. Well, I mean, it reminds me, I always say how much I enjoyed going to rehab because I never would have been in a situation <laughs> with those people had I not been there. And all of a sudden you're sharing a life even if it's brief and, and you have similar problems and, and, and that's your, I remember I was in the last rehab I went to, there was some like housewife who loved Michael Buble and I was always up first and she was always up first and we would smoke cigarettes and drink coffee together, you know, in, mm. in 2011. But it reminds me of that same phenomenon of coming up against humanity who you wouldn't necessarily be so mm -hmm. quick to befriend. One of my favorite stories in the book is the is the the crazy fascist Polish people outside the McDonald's? Yeah, can you tell that little story for the Dopey Nation, Jerry? Please. But to the extent I have any memory left, yes, and can recall the story, yes, and I will simply invoke the Oliver Sacks rule, which is that memory is the memory of the stories we think happened that we tell ourselves really went down. That caveat aside. 
I saw a bunch of guys at a McDonald's on the way to Auschwitz, and they all had on green and white jackets. And I thought, oh, it's like a soccer club, you know, as one would. But it turns out these guys were in some fascist organization. I believe it was the White Eagles. And, you know, as I get a little older, the map of the Negev has become a little more prominent on my forehead. Yes. You know, so I, th- I think they spotted a member of, of our particular tribe. I don't mean junkie in this case. I mean Juden, Newton. And uh, the guys were furious. They, they picked a fight. And uh, I kind of candy asked out. And I said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. I'm just taking pictures of the McDonald's because that's my job. I go around the world taking pictures of all the different McDonald's. I mean, I, you know, junkies, you know, we sit quick on our feet. Jerry, you know? did you really say that? Yeah, I, I busted that out. That's, I know, a little embarrassing. Awesome. It's awesome. And, and they spoke English. They and, understood what you said. And, and broken kind of English. But they also were cursing. And you know, all I could make out, and this could have been paranoia, but I'm pretty sure she was Newton, you know. And then my friend Slomo, who is like a uh, 90-year-old tough guy who like survived a Polish displaced persons camp and like when he was 10 uh, and first time he's been back in Poland, he comes over and he says something like, it sounded like he said like, you know, I'm like, what the fuck did you say? And it was something like pea sponge in a public toilet. It was some grotesque, specifically Polish insult, which involved pea and sponge. And he backed them off. So I effectively had my young, vigorous, compared to this guy, ass, completely saved and snatched off the griddle by a 90-year-old Jewish trumper. Why do you Couldn't think, be prouder. But why do you think they were scared or, or backed off? Like, that was, like, interesting to me. Like, because you also described— I think they were so freaked out. This guy just came busting right, out. Right, right. And he, he's, like, wagging his finger. Maybe they still respect their elders over there. But whatever, he tried to explain the insult to me. He's like, there's, there's like no equivalent in English. And I think they were so freaked by whatever truly demented shit that he was saying to them. They just like, whoa. You know, and then he uh, scurried back to the bus. And I mean, this guy was on top of the world. He felt like, he's like, yeah, a couple of tough kids from New York City. They're not going to get us, you know. And everybody was very impressed and made carnival with the fact that I had to have my, you know, my bacon rescued off the griddle, so to speak, by this old altacocker. Wow, that's the greatest. And that's also part of this community of the bus tour where everybody admired Shlomo or gave him his, his due and they loved they you and, props, yeah. and called you Gerald. I, yeah, I, I, well, they called me Gerald because all she had was on my passport. And hideously enough, that's what's on my passport. Right. But I'm not proud of it, but. You know, and then it's the bane of my existence. One of the themes in in nine nine nine, and it's kind of like one of the closing thoughts, are how something as horrible as the Holocaust going down it is kind of more of what human civilization is than these moments in between disasters, right? And it's kind of like yeah. al- alluding to some horrible future slash you know, future, we'll say, or, or near present of fascism, hatred, warfare, violence, blood. Like, how fearful are, are you of this coming thing? Well, I, I think the point is that somewhere in the world, for somebody, the ax is always falling. Right. And it's the time 
between holocausts, that is the exception. And to answer your question, I think where we are now with the Mastriano in Pennsylvania and with the DeSantis in Florida, not to mention, of course, uh, Trump, I think we are just a cunt hair away from total round up the Jews, blacks, gays, Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, fascism. I mean, I think that's where it's going. I mean, Mastriano, who's running for governor, literally came out and said, I don't want the Jewish vote. Yeah. I mean, you can look it up. And that didn't used to be. Not that people didn't feel that way, but pre-Trump, they did not have license to let that particular dog out of the kennel, you know? And now it's like, yeah, the proud boys are proud. Yeah. People it's all fucking happening. Right. And I think it's going to fucking happen. Yeah. What about you? You think I'm nuts? I, I, I like tend to have my head buried in the sand. My self-centeredness is, is too profound to even think about it. I, I'm, I'm just so caught. I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to think about it. And, and I'm also, I'm also a Jew from New York city. I went to a high school where it was probably mostly Asian and then Jewish. So like it was, mm. it was a much different, it was a much different experience yeah, than your yeah. experience. And, and thank God. I mean, where the town I live in now, my daughter, who's a half Jew is the most Jewish person in this school. You know what mm. I mean? Like it's, I don't live in a, in a diverse town by any stretch, I understand. Yeah, but, I understand. but like, because it doesn't feel like the end of the world out here, people are still getting along. And, and in New York, you know, I, I work with mostly Dominican people uh, on the street. It's incredibly multicultural, as you know. It, it doesn't feel like that because I'm in a multicultural bubble, which I'm very grateful to be in, you know? So that's I understand. A, which is great. And I want you to come back to New York, and I'm going to take you into the multicultural bubble so you can feel good. I don't know. I want you to feel good. You've got kids. I've got well, kids. I, mean, I, I, I lived in New York a long time. I mean, I get it, you know. But New York isn't the New York that I knew, I know people are always complaining, but it, it does feel a tad more corporate, does it not? Oh yeah. But, but COVID really like brought back 1978 quite nicely. Oh, nice. Like, That's beautiful to hear. Oh, How yeah. do you mean? I mean, lots of businesses shut down and there's lots of nice. crime in the yeah. street. I, I was walking, I, I was walking down the street kind of in the middle of COVID and uh, this pregnant woman came screaming and crying up to me. And it turned out it was a woman from my 12 step group who I hadn't seen in years. And she had just gotten spit on in the face by a homeless person who she was trying to help in a really chaotic oh situation. It's, it's very, and, oh and also weed is for sale in the stores on the street. They're selling mushrooms really? in, with impunity yeah. in Washington square park. The Methodonians are running wild. It it has, I mean, yeah. but, but at the same time, there's all these weird new uh, restaurants where you pick your protein yeah. and your 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 fake, uh, <laughs> f you know, cauliflower shawarma. Yeah. So it's a mix of yeah. 1978 and 2020 at the same time. I'm That's just saying, really fascinating. I'm just saying, in terms of the the fascism and the anti-Semitism and the racism, I feel. I feel good about being a New Yorker. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like. No, you should. It's a good place to be. But, you know, if you do happen to read a paper or catch the news, <laughs> there, you will know that that shit is in the mail, man. And, you know, it depends who gets elected, who doesn't get elected. But just the fact 
that we are on the cusp of that possibility, to me, makes it inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Which is the worst. And it's, it's just like, it's the opposite of love and tolerance is our code, which is like the greatest thing about being sober. When I, mm-hmm. when I mm-hmm. used to get fucked up, like in the heyday, when I became a heroin addict, George Bush was president. It, you know, it was the late nineties. Y2K was coming up and I, and, and we were, you know, and, and 9-11, you know, 9-11 had just happened. And, uh, and there were all these anarchist crust punks in the street. And it seemed like a really scary future to me. And like kind of futurism mm-hmm. was like on in the movies and like the world was about to be kind of as it is now, but with more of a cyberpunk edge to it. And a friend of mine was very much like, I don't blame you for being on heroin right now. And, and I wonder nice. how many people are using now because of kind of what you're alluding to, like the Trump period, the COVID period, mm-hmm. that I want to put the blanket over my head and run away. Sure. I think just my humble opinion, if you're looking for it, there is always a reason right. to stay down like that, just like there's always a reason to get clean. It just depends what you're looking for at any particular moment. And I certainly don't judge anybody. But, you know, it's like being in L.A. after an earthquake when you're trying to cop and you can't find anybody because everybody's out in the street, you know, like living on their blanket in fucking MacArthur Parks. You don't know who's copping and who's just out in the street with all their possessions. You know, it's like it's going to be tough down the road. And plus, isn't it all fentanyl now? I mean, how can you even be a dope fiend? All I read about is that it's not even fucking dope anymore. It's all fentanyl. Yeah, but now there's all these fentanyl fiends. You know what I mean? I'm hearing from all these right, people. Right, but don't they die a lot faster? They, they, the, a lot more of them are dying a lot faster. Absolutely. I mean, they're dying all the yeah, time. I mean, that, that's what happened to my, my partner. Uh, and that's what happened. Really? It was fentanyl that killed him? Yeah, I don't think. And, uh, oh, and, shit. And we, I mean, that was years ago already. That was 20, mm-hmm. 2018 wow. or 2017. I always, yeah. my, when you ask me about chronology, you know, you're right. I understand. No, I, I'm the same way. Yeah. And, well, I try to celebrate, I try to acknowledge when he died every year on the show. Sure. So the fact that, it, that the year escapes me right now is a little bit embarrassing. That's all right. But uh, what was I going to say? Everybody that's that's died, I feel like since then in the dopey community, it has all been mm-hmm. fentanyl overdoses. And and I also Isn't hear that about right? that people can't find heroin. If they want heroin, all they find is fentanyl. Yeah, well that's that's what I mean. And I've also heard, read, and had firsthand told to me on both coasts and in the middle that even think you know, even cocaine. Even, you know, fucking fake Xanax and right, shit. Right, You know, it's all laced with fentanyl and people are just keeling over. Yeah, Sam Quinones just wrote a book about that, about fentanyl oh, and stuff. I love it. What a brilliant book that was. Yeah, yeah he came on. Yeah. He, really? He, yeah, he was good on Marin. Yeah. I listened to his interview on your show. What a hero. What yeah. a great journalist he is. Yeah, he really, he really paints a picture. He's really, really great with people and stories. Now I want to ask you something real quick and it's going to be not, it's it's not a real, real quick. It's like you came up in the seventies and you've done like everything. We started by talking about opium up your butt, standing on your head. Did that really happen? Is that a real thing? That's That's a real thing. Yeah. You need that because it needs to get into your bloodstream. 
It's like, uh, you know, it's like how the French, every, you can't take an aspirin in France without it being a suppository, you know. So uh, there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of Frenchmen stand. If you ever see a Frenchman walking on his hands down the street, probably trying to get that drug into his system. <laughs> or he's in the circus, one or the other. Was that the only time, and they call that boofing, right? I did not know that. I never heard the word boofing until famed Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh talked about boofing. What was he boofing? I, I don't know what the hell he meant, but he used the term boofing. So is boofing a term for shoving it up your ass and having? I think boofing was like, wasn't he shooting beer up his ass or something crazy? I might be way off. Here. You had me pegged when I when you said I didn't read the paper or watch the news. So I don't know. That's all right. I don't care. I, I mean, you, you know, whatever takes us survive, man. I don't know. I don't know what he was boofing, but we have a ton of Dopey Nation people who boof. They'll they'll fill you in. They and, and what is boofing? What well, does it mean? It means to put drugs up your butt. They all boof okay, meth. All right. Fair enough. Now, when you they boof mess, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's the big, wow. the big thing. And I always imagine that the asshole becomes the third nostril snorting up the meth. Because I mean, but it's funny you, you you thought about the asshole. I went right to the finger. Right. Okay. Well, that makes more sense. Like how though. grotesque? It, like how gross is that? But hey, who am I to judge? But when you're standing on your head to get the mm. opium in you, it's because she, the the lady, the German lady described mm -hmm. that if you don't stand on your head, that the opium drips out of you. It can leak out. Yeah. It's kind of a preventative measure. And it's a prophylactic. How so was it, it melts because you know, the opium kind of melts in there and then goes, I'm going to say, is it north or south? I guess it goes south. But if you're on your head, that's kind of north. Right. It go, that's the whole idea. Like, How much opium did you do? You know, it was a big fat knuckles worth and we just split it in half. I'll be honest. I had never done it before. Right. I had smoked what I thought was opium in my day or had opiated hash, which is a thing. But I know, you know, I never like had an opium pipe. Like Nick Tasha's wrote that great book where he went around the world uh, called The Last Opium Den, looking for the last opium den. I never like legitimately did it like that. You know what I mean? Do you think, uh, do you think but, there are any opium dens anywhere? A guy can dream. I don't know. There's a funny internet meme where like, it's like a woman that uses her time traveling device wants to meet her grandmother when she's a kid and uh, a junkie wants to find the last opium den, <laughs> which I think That's is funny. Fu which, wait, wait a second. I had an idea somewhat like that. You're telling me that has already been done? Junkie time travel? Uh, just as a meme, but I think this could be our third project. Uh, what I really want to do, and, and this is fucked up, Jerry, I want us to, or mm. you, somebody, to remake Permanent Midnight as the movie it's meant to be. Because mm. th there's so much shit that it's just so good. And that movie, I love Ben Stiller too. I've watched that movie like probably 20 times. But the book mm. is is so good. It, it just, I don't, have they ever made two movies out of one book? Sure. They do it all the time. Well, I think that's something we should maybe contact Johnny Depp about. I heard he's a good yeah. a good patron yeah. of yours, so maybe maybe yeah that that that's the guy. Uh, yeah, who the hell knows? He already owns a book of mine in perpetuity. That's which I, is I fatty. Never made. I fatty. Yeah, but um, yeah. Well, you know what can I say? I was a different kind of asshole in the book than I was in the movie, but uh, such is life. What about quaaludes, Jerry? Loved them. 
What happened to them? them? Where did they go? And why aren't they coming back? I don't know, but I will tell you, I had an, I was just telling somebody the other day, I had an odd experience. I was seeing a woman for a while who would buy quaaludes in literally like fucking trash bags, like enormous quantities. And we got them from this house in Laurel Canyon, which later turned out to be the house, you know, where John Holmes did those mongers in that, in that movie. Wonderland. Yes. Yeah. So small world. Years later, when I found out the address of that house, when I looked into it, read the books, saw the movie, or whatever, I realized that's the house where this woman, who shall remain nameless, would ask me to drive her to get these fucking trash bag quantity quaaludes. Does that mean you guys were buying from that crew? I don't know if it's the same people. It could have been the same house. Things are pretty fluid in that world. Who the hell knows? Right. When's, I make no claims. When's the last time you got high? You have no recollection? Uh, well, I can... Oh, the, the specific last time? Yeah. I do not specifically. I just know that it just got harder and harder to feel anything. I couldn't even get normal. You know, you're in that horrible place where you can't get clean and you can't get high and you just can't get white, you know? Mm -hmm. So you just have to sort of give it all up because nothing is fucking working. You know, how did you burn your last bridge? You know, how did you get clean in the end? In the end, the very, 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 I mean, I did rehab this. The very, very last time was just, you know, in a shitty little apartment, you know, taking a bunch of shit like clonidine to lower my blood pressure and, all this other shit to just kick, you know, sweat it out for a few days and just try to get to the other side, you know? And, uh, you know, you know how it goes when your knees hurt for fucking six months. I mean, you know, it's like hats off to anybody who goes through it because it is not easy. So you successfully kicked at home, a real habit. Yeah, eventually. But, you know, after many unsuccessful times, successfully kicking before and then going back on it, you know? You know, I've kicked in hospitals, you know, the whole fucking thing. You know, you do everything a million times before you die, unless you're just one of those wonderful, blessed people who just fucking get it. Oh, yeah. I hate those people. The people who are like yeah. 28 and have 10 years, right? I went to a meeting and I knew I was home. I mean, God bless them. When, when you first went, did, like, how did, how did you fall into this, this great uh, secret society slash cult? How did it, how did it work you know, for I, you? I've been gone. For, it worked exactly the opposite of the way it's supposed to work, which is I started going to meetings, you know, and it was complete personalities over principles. I saw people who were like the late David B. Owie and uh, others who were able to have anything they wanted in life and could have stayed high the rest of their fucking lives. And they made the choice to be there. And then I met Hubert Sauber, who was my fucking idol. And he was there. And it was just like, oh, my God, everybody I fucking idolize is fucking here at 730 in the goddamn morning on the other side of town. So I found that incredibly inspirational, which no doubt outs me as a completely shallow kind of guy. But that kind of got me there. And then I fell in love with the stories. 
And then I got, you know, Selby ended up sponsoring me. And he was just incredibly generous. And, uh, you know, on and on and on. The first person you mentioned, you say, was it David Bowie? Yeah. Wow. Did you I saw him. I didn't know him. Okay. You know, but he was at a, he was at a meeting. But I, and it was horrible for him because he had to quit going because somebody at that meeting like outed him to like the uh, inquirer or something. So now they, you know, they have all these private meetings, you know, for like super celebs. So I guess he started going to those, which, you know, I don't love, but I guess if you need it, you need it. When, when, when Selby started sponsoring you, had, had Permanent Midnight come out? No, no, it had not. As a matter of fact, I showed him the manuscript of the thing and I didn't know the guy. And this was such a great lesson. His thing was always say yes to the universe. And I asked him if he would read it. You know, it wasn't even a book then. It was like a manuscript. And he said, sure, you know, I'll read anything, which is incredibly kind. Because yeah. it doesn't, you know, he actually read the thing. And he had this comment, which is going to sound so cheesy when I tell you. But where I was coming from, I'm thinking like, okay, here's this guy with this cheesy sentiment. Here's a guy who kicked dope, strapped down on a gurney in the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department saying to me, when you write about people you hate, write about them with love. And that totally blew the top of my head off, only because it came from Selby, right. who was the toughest, most badass guy I knew. And his writing was the toughest, most badass of anything I'd ever read. And, and I would say to him, I hope this is of some value to your, to your listeners, but if there's any artists in the audience, I'd say to him, like, oh, man, you know, I'm afraid if I stop using it, I'm going to lose my edge. And he just cackled and said, you dumb motherfucker. What you don't get is when you get off of everything, that's when you realize how fucking crazy you really are. And that certainly proved to be true. That's interesting. And I think that's, I mean, how do you deal with that? Because that, that's great for the artists and the, in, the, in the community and the listenership, whatever. How about the person who's not an artist, right? And they're an addict and they get sober. How do you use that craziness in life if you're not an artist? Or can you not even answer that question because you are an artist? I don't even think it's about being an artist. I think it's about telling yourself there's something you need that you don't really need. I mean, let's face it. For me, it's not that heroin made me creative. It just made the fucking chair more comfortable. Right. You know, right. it's easier to sit down because that was my reward system. Right. You know, but eventually you realize that for every minute of comfort, you get like 20 minutes of fucking hell. And the equation eventually, William Burroughs has some essay somewhere. I think it's like the algebra of need or something. I'm completely butchering this. So I don't know if I have it right, but you just realize you're just fucking cheating. You're conning yourself. You know, you're your own mark. And just out of sheer morbid curiosity, why not go the other way? Because you can always get fucked up again tomorrow if that's what you want to do. Right. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. If I could have stayed on heroin and been okay with it, been happy, I would have done it. If I could have stayed on heroin and not been totally miserable, broke, have nothing, no friends, no family, no work, no nothing, I would have done it. If drugs could have given yeah. me a life, I would I would have stayed on drugs, but they but they yeah, well, they couldn't yeah. they couldn't give me the well, life. It's like the the Burroughs thing. It's like it's it's not the drug; it's the lifestyle. 
It's what you got to fucking do, you know? But then again, I've known some jazillionaires who kicked because they couldn't handle it either, you know? It just takes you to a level of misery. It just like, it just became boring. When I relapsed, I think for the last time, and don't even ask me who it is. I can't remember shit. What but was it? Like, well, tell us the last relapse. It, it was, no, I, rel- I relapsed on heroin, but I, it was like going back to kindergarten and trying to squeeze into one of those little desk chairs. It's like, this isn't working. This is fucking boring, you know? It's like being a dope fiend is the most boring nine-to-five job ever, you know? And Jesus, I don't need that. I got enough of those in real life. I love that. I love that. I love that idea that the relapse is like going back to kindergarten and not fitting into that desk. I love that. I think that is really, 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 really good and helpful. One other thing that I want to ask you about that seems to be an ongoing theme is, you know, is, is depression, the other D word. Mm. So, yeah. So like, how do you deal with it? You know, like depression is, is, is a very, 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 uh, ongoing theme in 999 it's kind of a way you describe yourself in general kind of in every media i've ever consumed of yours so how do you deal with it now the best i can do as i might have said earlier is not depress other people because the most depressing thing you can do whether it's your child the man or woman you love or just anybody in your fucking life or, you know, the guy at the grocery store batting shit. You know, if you just make other people feel like shit, that just, you know, geometrically increases your own despair. So the closest thing to happiness I can get, as grim as this might sound, is not making you depressed. That's a good day. And somewhere by inches, a matter of degree, one day you find yourself, it happens, by some weird grace, just like, oh my God, I don't feel like blowing my brains out today. What the fuck is wrong? Because I remember saying that to Selby. It's like, Jesus Christ, I feel like, I don't know, man, like everything's kind of still and weird and I, I, I don't feel like hurling myself off a tall building. He's like, yeah, asshole, that's called peace. You know, and I've had enough moments of those, of that, to know it exists, even if I can't always get there. Yeah. But it's like, that's like the high you know is out there that you can keep chasing in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like inverted service. The inversion of service is beautiful, like. Beautifully put. Oh, thank you. Yeah. If, if you nice can. Inverted service. Wow. If you cannot make other people I miserable. Thought you, I thought you said invert I thought you said inverted servers and I was trying to figure it out. Inverted <laughs> service. Yes. Yeah. I but, thought you were going a whole other direction. I think okay, both. got it. Let's do both. Yeah, Wait, but the way. inverted cervix is more elegant than the inverted service, is what you're saying. Well, no, I just you know, I can't fucking hear. It's what it is. So yeah, inverted service, now that you say it's beautifully but what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> I mean like I like if, if I tell people, like if I sponsor somebody, right. Or if I'm talking at a Uh meeting and I'm, and and like, and and you're trying to find some kind of joy through working a program, I I used to suggest distract yourself by any means necessary. Watch a movie, masturbate, eat, fucking go for a walk, do anything so that you're not thinking about using. And then having a little bit of time, it's like, well, if you do service, you can take yourself out of your head 
and you can make somebody else feel good and Mm -hmm. you don't, and you don't have to be self-centered and it makes you feel Mm -hmm. better. And what you said was you're not worried about your depression. You're worried about not depressing others, which is kind of like an inversion of service when it comes to your own depression. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, it gives you the opportunity, if I understand you somewhat, (laughs) because when you're of service, when I'm listening to your story, I'm like you say, I'm not thinking about me. And that is, it's such a mundane, common Buddhist ass secret, but it it is the truth. And that, that way, you know, that way freedom lies, I think. I, I, that's what I think too. It's the way out. You know, the only way out is through. And like, I mean, we were, we were reading about, and I don't want to make this some weird, you know, 12 step, uh, ending to this, to this thing. But I was at a meeting this morning and we were reading the seventh step, you know, about, uh, about removing character defects and this and that. And like, when I remember to try to ask for character defects to be removed, it helps remove them. But I always forget to ask. And like, I think mm-hmm. like when you're talking about depression can, and, and maybe, and maybe this isn't even a fair question. Like when, when you feel most at peace, is it by doing work at being at peace or does peace just come to you? Can you work yourself out of depression? I think the tricky word is work. I don't think it's work to be of service, to pick up the phone, to get out of your own head and listen to somebody else. But in terms of forgetting to do the seventh step, it's sort of like a version of what my grandfather always used to say about being a Jew. Like if you ever forget you're a Jew, a Gentile will remind you. It's like if you forget to try and remove whatever defect it is, I guarantee somebody's going to remind you because you're going to do something hideous and it's going to backfire and you're going to feel like shit. Right. So, you know. I get it. It ain't brain surgery. I get it. I wanted to ask you about Dilaudid too. What do you What do you think about Dilaudid versus uh, heroin? Because you you described <laughs> it as the holy, grail. the cold shake of Dilaudid. Well, it is a lot easier to serve up. I mean, back in the day, I think they since changed its chemical composition and put in all kind of weird wax and shit. But back in the day, yeah, you just shake that shit up and run it through a gut, and you're good to go. But uh, hey, you know. That like was, Lenny Bruce said, it's it's deluxe, it's delicious, it's delighted. There you go. Yeah. What a note to end on. My fucking God. I think that is the note to end on. <laughs> okay, man. It's your show. Well, thank you, man. This has been a pleasure. I hope this I hope this means something to somebody. Well, it didn't didn't it mean something to you, Jerry Stahl? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah. All right. It'll mean something to somebody. And I, I if it doesn't mean anything to anybody, it meant way too much to me. So thank you. Well, I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it, man. And uh, when we are off the air, you can tell me something. Do you go to meetings in person now or do you do them on the Internet? I w- I've always gone in person, even when with COVID. Nice. Okay. Uh, because I go to a meeting yeah. on the beach. How lovely. Every morning at okay. eight, in the, 8 in the morning, uh, oh, fantastic. Th- there's that's a beach great. meeting. And, uh, and wow. that's, that's the only place okay. I go. I don't go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I go that's, like, that's like I do like three days a week or something. And it's that's mo- great. But I would too, if it was on the beach, it's like all that's cops, great, it's all cops and contractors and shit. And, uh, perfect. You don't want people like you. Right. Exactly. But they, they're amused by me. 
You know what I mean? I amuse them. That's okay. So yeah, it's- you can you can be the mascot. I'm sure they've busted a hundred of punks like you. You know. Well, I, I can't thank you enough, Jerry, for for giving us so much time. The pleasure was all mine. All right, so that was Jerry Stahl, and I when I say I've been trying to get Jerry Stahl on Dopey for seven years, I mean I've been trying to get Jerry Stahl on Dopey for seven years, and I honestly felt, like, I don't know if it's real, like, sometimes you make friends with people on the show, it felt like I made friends with him, and I think he's great, and I think Permanent Midnight is probably the best drug memoir I've ever read, and I didn't, okay, I'm just going to stop for a second. I've relocated with a dopey fucking OG, the one and only from the fucking ganja farms of Grassland, California, B-Gats. Welcome to the show. What up? What up, Dave from Dopey? I'm sitting across from my... It's so great to meet you at four years. Is it weird or is it very normal? No, it was amazing. When I walked into the tent, we were... was like the the songwriter lab with Jason Isbell and Warren Haynes and Margot Price and you saved me a seat. Saved you a seat. And And he he brought me a dark chocolate and, and oat granola bar. You said you were hungry. You were famished. Famished. Yeah, so... That was amazing way to meet you. Um, just to be here is incredible. To be holding a mic, sitting across from you in a Cats Delicatessen t-shirt. Do you think it was played out of me to wear the Cats shirt at this thing? No, most people are not familiar. They're, I mean, they don't know that you're Dave from Dopey who also works at Cats's. It's super inside. You have to listen to Dopey to really know. I know, but I'm such like, I, I'm like, I shouldn't wear the Cats' shirt. Because I know people will talk to me because I wear the Cats' shirt. You know right. what I'm saying? And I was like, shouldn't do it, but it was helpful. Did it get any uh, small talk? It was very helpful. So, mission accomplished. Warren Haynes, because he's the cat. I wore it for Warren Haynes, because yeah. he was the Cats' regular. And B. Getz just got the fucking... B. Getz has a podcast. You should check it out. It's called the Upful Life Podcast. And he just said he got the, the interview of his career. So break it down, Mr. Getz. Uh, well, you know... I don't think that was the interview of your career. It's debatable, but it's one that I've uh, always wished for, for long before I had the podcast. That's, uh, there's a band called Rising Appalachia, and they're led by two sisters, Leah and Chloe, and I've been a fan and written about them extensively and seen them everywhere from New Orleans to Costa Rica to Philadelphia to California. Uh, I'm forgetting some... Oh, Florida... Halloween, you name it. Um, and finally, I waited to ask till all the stars were aligned. And I, little did I know they would be aligned in Park City, Utah. So just moments before uh, I rendezvoused with Dave here, I sat in a beautiful spot in nature, kind of off the beaten path behind the lodge with, in like a wildflower field. Did you get stoned with them when you did the interview? No. Okay. I might have had a few puffs before I But not you up. didn't share with them? No. Okay. I do that sometimes on the pod. This didn't strike me as one of those occasions. I was actually really nervous for this one. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm just such a huge fan. They, their music uh, means a lot to me on like a profound, like spiritual, like how I want to move through life kind of way. Like how does it they, sound? I never heard them. Um, we're going to hear them tomorrow night because I'm going to drag you to the gig. But uh, they're a five-piece band. They play like uh, banjo, fiddle, acoustic guitar, stand-up, bass. Nice. And then they have like a percussionist who makes, his name's Biko. He makes incredible like hip-hop beats out of like uh, ancient African percussion, you know? Nice. Um, and they sing kind of like a hybrid traditional Appalachian folk music and hip-hop R&B. It's absolutely perfect. 
And uh, I waited, you know, I do a lot of interviews with my heroes, with my friends. This was like, I just waited. I, I didn't want to ask and be turned down or like come off like the wrong way. And we came here and I like set a pitch, I sent a pitch on the email, carefully worded. Just, Meticulous. Yes, I just put it all out there. Like I would love to f offer you a platform to discuss Rising Appalachian, here's why. And they said yes. And one of the two sisters, Leah, Leah Song, showed up. And uh, it was a very rewarding conversation as a fan, as a journalist. And, and um, it felt, I've written about them for a long time, so it felt good to hear from them how they receive what I write about them. It's awesome. So I'm on cloud nine right now, and it's not from the ganja. Well, I'm sure it's partially from the, the sweet ganja. When B gets sat down next to me, he gives me the fucking dark chocolate oats, but he stinks like rocks at DopeyCon 1. He <laughs> smelled like the fucking dank, I swear to God. Uh, and then another fun fact, B Gats wasn't going to come. And I was like, dude, you should come, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, I was like I'm going to have a room, you can stay with me, whatever. And, uh, and then he was like, I think I'm going to come. And I was like, okay, but I think someone's going to be staying with me. And he's like, well, it looks like they're going to hook me up. And I fucking go to his room and he's like fucking at the Plaza Hotel. They have me in the basement across the street. Like I'm next to the boiler room. My air conditioner doesn't work. They gave me like a box fan. B gets <laughs> has a hot tub on his back porch, a fireplace, a fucking full size kitchen. And I'm like in, literally in the basement and off the garage. I swear to God. Look, hey, if you look at the marquee or the schedule, I'm not on there. You are. Is you're it? you're the more the very important person here, and I'm here to cover the very important people. So I'm not sure why. It doesn't matter. I got. Uh, it's humorous to me. It's hilarious, and honestly, I feel bad. It's an embarrassment of. It's an embarrassment of riches. It's it's. Don't feel bad. Enjoy. Well, enjoy. I'm happy to have you over. It's a. It's beautiful. Anytime. Um, this is. It's not every day, you know, I cover a lot of festivals. I, I'm, I'm lucky that I can like write about music for a career and all, but it's not every day that a festival brings me out, rolls out the red carpet, puts me up in a place like this and, and facilitates me networking with the likes of Dave from Dopey Podcast, oh. Rising Appalachia. I'm just saying like my wheelhouse, the people that I commiserate with, that I work with, that I cover, that I adore, um, it's just been an absolute joy. I've only been here a better part of like 27 hours and I, it's been an amazing, I've said amazing too many times, so I'm going to try to say incredible, yeah, fantastic, incredible, fantastic, really cool, very rewarding. And I hope, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg because you haven't even done your thing yet. Like uh, you're yeah, here, yeah. You've got two live events. I've got three live events, three live events. I'm going to be there. If you, you know, you can always, you know, it needs a peanut gallery. I'll be out there. I'll raise my hand and say something stupid and get off of the hook. Well, I, I see. You know what this place kind of reminds me of? You know the movie Almost Famous, right? Do where, I know where, the movie? Where everyone's on the road and they have this romantic life and it's this fake world of, I mean, when I say fake, like this temporary world of friends and, 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 and good times. And I'm making friends with all these people. I'm like, what's up, Jay Blakesburg? He's like, Dopey Dave. And I'm like, what's up, yo, yo, yo? And he's like, what's going on? And it's like, I feel like it's kind of like almost famous style. Like all of a sudden, like I'm a part of this and then it's just gonna be like poof. And I've never been treated this good anywhere. Me either. Really? 100%. So we're going to give a big shout out to the Park City Song Summit. Yeah.
and especially Ben Anderson, a uh, friend of the pod and soon to be on the Up for Life pod. And he was on the Margaret Show dopey episode. And yes. Kind of like this with me. It was on the end of an I- interview um, after Jerry Stahl. He was after Margaret Show. But he's very fond of Dave because as soon as I started to interview him for the preview, I was like, I'm going to I wanted to like, you know, name drop me. Yes, wow. I did. And he was like, I love that guy. You know, and I'll I sent him a box from Katz's. Yeah. Well, see, you know, the that really goes way to, that really goes a long way with these kinds of people. Here's what I think is really cool about this is that um, I've been waving the dopey flag for roughly four years, nice. maybe a little longer at this point. Um, and and, you know, listening to the show, I've booked you a few guests. Great guests. You know, and in the music recovery. Begets has been diagram. responsible for Ivan Neville. Mike Dillon. I gave you the tip on John Joseph. You did that, but John I jo- put it in. Right, in your John ear. Joseph, tip on John Joseph. And also, B has also been incredible, you know, giving me backstory on Tom, on Nikki Six and just oh, yeah. like often just helping out. Yeah, I love to learn you up. And, and what I'm saying is it's reciprocal because I've been on your show. You've shouted out the pod. You've come on my show. It's the second most downloaded show. What's the first one? Uh, uh, Jake Rokitansky from QAnon Anonymous. Ah, yes. He overtook me recently then. Well, it was like a year after yours, and his is about a year old. Ah. It, those, it's ironic because those are the two, like, you know, which of these are not like the other. Right. Because it's the guy from the recovery. How pod. much better did the QAnon one do than mine? Not that much. Okay, good. Yeah, so like I, can feel, I can feel okay. Oh, yeah. And you could still overtake them. And in your episode... Is is much more personal and it's it's way different. And I'd never met him. I just listened to that show religiously, and he's the music guy on QN and Anonymous. So I hit him up and I was like, "Dude, I love that Lil Wayne reference. You want to come on my show?" He's right. like, "You got it." Right. And they, their show is like about the size of your show. I um, bet it's much bigger. Well, I have a feeling it's much bigger. The bottom line was those you know were two huge eps for me, and I'm grateful. And I, I hopefully later this weekend we're going to do up full part two with Dave. Oh, I'm down. Where we'll we'll talk about a lot of the same stuff, but and we'll, a little bit more because it'll be after we've lived through this a little bit more. Right, right. And I got to tell you, I don't want to rub it in. Yes. But you missed a good one last night. I know. And there was a lot of good recovery talk. I know. And I also missed out on like rubbing shoulders. This is the only place that Dopey has value. I like have balls here. I'm like interesting and funny. I'm not just like this guy with this weird drug podcast here. I'm like part of the solution here. Yeah. Well, you're that's why I was getting at before is that it's so unique that this place would say we need Dave and Dopey and we need begets and up for life and live for life music because for four years we've been participating in each other's programs and being friends and and never did our endeavors coalesce right right and then we get invited out here and you're you're not lying i was not going to come mostly because it's run up to my wedding and i did basically like seven festivals this summer like wrote all these stories and blah 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 and then when you were like yo you know you should really check it out and i doubled back and they were like what's it gonna take and and honestly is the best move so thank you dave for putting the like kind of nudge because i was more or less not coming 
until you, you know, leaned on me a little bit. Now we get to spend a weekend together. Well, we're like Kal-El on planet Earth with the fucking yellow sun making us more <laughs> important than we are in our normal lives. That's fine for the weekend. I'll take it. And you know, Dopey Nation. Let's and just... We don't have our wives with us either, so and neither of them are actually our wives either, but, you know, we don't have our other halves, so yes. it's kind of like... You know, boys weekend. We could do some crazy shit is yeah. what you're saying, but I'm, we're not going to. I'm not suggesting. You never know. I'm just saying. You that. never know. Anyway, before I say anything else, Dopey Nation, uh, go to listen to me on the Upful Life so we can overtake QAnon guy. Yeah. And also, it might be the best interview I ever did. The, the I've up, been my, told. The Upful Life Begets interview, he was very thorough. I like the Marin interview, but the fucking B Gets Up Full Life interview is right there. They're different. It's right there. Up Full Life is no holds barred. You're on Mark Marin's podcast, so you comported yourself with a certain measure of like professionalism and kind of like fit you, into his world. Yeah. And with me, you were like unabashedly Dave. Like you right. you know, neuroses, bug right. outs, like right, all right. this self examination. Like it's amazing. I've got gotten a, a number of notes from people if, about your appearance on my show mostly dopey nation folks who just said that like the version of you that showed up on my pod is like it's class it was a classic it was a classic uh, appearance so and, check and igor or igor from the dopey nation who i met in real life really yeah yeah we met uh at a music uh, lettuce show in dillon colorado but we've been in touch and i might have even seen him once since then but he just started listening to my show and he might by the time he hears this he's probably going to have heard you on my show i just want to shout out Igor, he's like, not every day that a internet dopey nation friend actually becomes a real life friend and stays a real life friend. We're nice. going to talk about life, and uh, and I Igor's Igor's hit that level. Yeah, I mean, or Igor, but why do you not know how to pronounce his name then? You know, because we've only hung out a couple of times. Whichever way I said it, he didn't correct me. Right. You know, but my barber's name is Igor, and uh, I couldn't get a haircut to come here. I was like fucking Teen Wolf before I yeah. came here, and I had to get a haircut in Sayville. But shout out to my new Long Island barber, Shane. I was saying, so now it's kosher for shout outs since Fentanyl J, right? People so, don't like the shout outs. All right, well, so. I'm doing one more to my okay. man Axel in Florida, who's oh, he, from I, the Swanee crew. Last episode, I read his four year post. Oh, right on. So he was very, very, very pleased. Yeah, and uh, I know you I, love I, Axel. I put him on to Dopey. He didn't know about it. He was like doing Narcan work in Florida. And I was like, you up on Dopey? He's like, what's that? I was like, bro, get familiar. Now he's like an ambassador. Get familiar. Yeah. I like it. And he's not coming to DopeyCon, and I don't think you're coming to DopeyCon. You're going to miss me by like three days, man. I can lay out the red carpet like this at my dad's house. You can sleep at the fucked up couch. Like, um, I'm excited about it, though. Especially when you're doing stuff like this. When you're doing this, it's got to give you some momentum for DopeyCon because you're spreading the Dopey gospel, and you have this big like, community event coming up. Well, the interesting thing... And, uh, and after this, we're either going to get to you telling a fucked up story, uh, our fucked up voicemail, or the fucked up Instagram story that we might read. But before we get to this, there's an interesting thing that happened, which is the year that we did the first DopeyCon, two weeks before, me and Ray went to West Virginia to the Healing Appalachia concert, where I emceed in front of like 7,000 people warming me up for DopeyCon in exactly a similar way. Right on. It's so, symbiosis. Right it's there. some weird thing. Definitely. Okay, so it's your call. Do you want to hear the voicemail? Do you want to tell a fucked up story? Or do you want to read the Instagram story? What's the call, Mr. Getz? You're putting me on the spot, man. It's easy. I don't care. Any of it is good. So, so do you want to tell a story? 
I mean, I told a couple on the Patreon. So classics. I, like some of my best. Fucked up, dopey classics. Yeah. I mean, I. Don't feel on the spot. Let's do the Instagram story. And then if when we get through that, we'll see if, if I want to tell us. I've got plenty, but I'm also like I, I'm in here on my government name. I hear you. You know, so that I. I you know who I just reached out to? Rich Mayhem to congratulate him on his pod. And he told me he was going to listen to the Mountain Girl episode, which I thought was very right sweet. On. And then um, what was the other thing? Fucking uh, Larry Ratso Sloman went to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers and he wore the Oive hat. And he took pictures with Anthony Kiedis wearing the Oive hat, which I thought you'd get a kick out of. Of course. And When's Kiedis coming on Dopey? I would say probably never. No. we get, that's, you gotta <coughs> Do you want to you read this thing? I'll read it. All right, cool. This is from a guy called Entheo Recovery. Entheo Recovery. Okay. And put the mic close. It's when a crazy story, I think. I gotcha. All right. Entheo Recovery. <clears throat> when my dad died in 2016, I inherited $2.6 million. $2.6 million. That's what it says on here. Dave. Okay. Keep going. I had been in long-term recovery, but in and out of the rooms. Mostly N.A. I was one of the few that didn't look or talk like an addict, although my, t my story was challenging. By this time, I was a CCAR recovery coach, went to Springfield College for counseling, was a program manager for recovery residences, and had an article featured in Grapevine. I ended up going out and spent two years in this bathroom getting high. Three grand a day, 50 bucks on three stems at a time. No need for sleep, I'd pass out. No need to eat, but if I did, it was delivery, and I dropped what was left on the floor. I had worms and open sores, black flies in the house, and was down to 150 pounds. I lost family members due to the disease and was speaking to them, letting them know I was coming. By accident, I found a video by Gabor Mate, friend of the show, on ayahuasca and addiction. I had toured with the Grateful Dead when I was just out of college and had an incredible amount of experience with LSD. I used to drink crystal wash. What's that? Uh, it's a LSD crystal process they go through the purification purification process for the LSD crystal. Crystal wash. Yeah. You ever drink crystal wash? It's the LSD crystal. Have I ever? Well, I mean, no. Okay. But I have. I'm not going to get into my own story here. <laughs> it's a very potent and like close to the source version of LSD. It's okay. not just like taking a paper hit. So he says, I liked 200 hits at a time, but it was to get high. No more, no less. I was desperate. 200 hits at a time? Yeah, I mean, when you're eating like a, a gram crystal, like a crystal gram, that's exponential. You know, you're talking, you need a babysitter for a few days. It's like a rite of passage in like the quote unquote Grateful Dead family, like the acid family. Have you ever taken a hit like that? No way, dude. Okay. I, no, I'm a lightweight when it comes out. I like enjoy it, but in small increments. Back to this dude. I used to drink Crystal Wash. I liked 200 hits at a time, but it was to get high. No more, no less. I was desperate and willing to try anything. I ended up breaking free for a few months with the help of cannabis, ibogaine, and ayahuasca. It was a miracle. 
I did end up returning to the bathroom for about six more months, albeit with a different level of consciousness. I knew what I was doing and had a better idea of why. This time I did it without the help of others, but with a handful of medicines. I'm in Florida, so I pick my own mushrooms. I use psychedelics with the intent to heal, and I am a better man for it. I spoke for an event for the State of Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and at CCAR's National Recovery Conference in Colorado in May. Please realize that my mom was a counselor at Gunster House in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I used to go on late night 12-step calls with her. I have been going to meetings since 1981. And then he says 1989 for myself. Maybe she had been going to meetings since? Yeah, yeah. maybe he had gone with her when he was a kid. What I share is with love and honesty. I'm not here to say this is the next big thing, but one of many that may help others. If you can use me, this is a neat story. I have tons of them. I appreciate what you do, and I'm here to be supportive. And then he signed off with his first name. What's his first name? Mark. All right. So thanks, Mark. To which you give him a one and a half sentence response. <laughs> what did I say? Thanks, man. That was a very interesting story. <laughs> so my thoughts on that is like, honestly, I... Obvi- I still on occasion enjoy psychedelics and while i don't think they're a part of my own recovery uh, from oxycontin i do think that is like kind of beneficial for people but this this sort of like stream of consciousness rambling stream of consciousness kind of like crazy this does hit of hits this doesn't uh it's not a good the normies are not going to read this and be like, you know what? We, we should rethink uh, psychedelics and recovery. Like this sounds like the crystal wash who's like, yes, yeah, still, still on the crystal wash. No judgment there. I mean, I'm all for psychedelics. I really think that it's an important component of the recovery. Um, you know, I have to movement. say th- this guy, Mark, though, he wants to come on dopey. And often people will write me that they want to come on dopey. And I, I often write back, send me a story. Because, like, then we can get to know you, you know what I mean? And Mark did the right thing, and he sent the story. The thing I loved about the story is the $2.6 million. Yeah. I just want to get back to that. I wonder how much of that he blew through in those however many months in the stems bathroom. Stems with stems and stems. Yeah. Anyway, I, li- I like the story. I like any story with, with the crazy inheritance. And Crystal Wash, which was read by the great B. Gats with an onboard definition. So you can't, you can't do better than that. Yeah, there's some extreme LSD stuff that's like uh, over my head. You yeah, know? it's funny. I, I will tell here. It's organic and it'll be short. Um, and I told this story on my pod with Jay Blakesburg, my fiftieth pod. Jay Blakesburg, who's here? Who's here? Who asked Legendary. to come on Dopey? You crazily enough, he's he's one of my highest uh, downloads. He was my fiftieth episode, and we talked tons of Grateful Dead history and prison because we both have that in common too. And LSD, I think. We, well, that's where I'm going with this. I told this story with him. It's not like a crazy, depraved, dopey story. It's more of Grateful Dead acid story. Uh, I was 17. I had taken LSD one time. It was awesome. Me and a bunch of my hometown homies like met up with skateboards and bikes in like an industrial park parking lot and just tripped out and talked about life. So I thought I could just take, oh, I was good. Fast forward a few months. Grateful Dead are in town. At the Philly Spectrum for three nights. Yes. My parents are in St. Martin. Uh Uh-oh. And I have this babysitter. Her name was Dolores. Uh, She came and stayed with me anytime my folks would go away and let me do whatever the hell I wanted. So at this point in time, I was partying. 
and 17 i didn't drive yet but i had the homies drive we were into the dead i'd seen the dead a number of times already um i went on that friday night had a great time came back to dolores i threw a party on saturday night at the crib there were nitrous tanks everything was great sunday um we're going to go back to the dead i was their last night in town it was march 19th uh 18th 18th excuse me march 18th 1995 and our favorite song to this day, Unbroken Chain. It's a, a kind of obscure song from Mars Hotel album, sung by Phil Lesh, uh, similar to Box of Rain, just very beautiful, ethereal, psychedelic song. The Grateful Dead never played it's it. It's a gem. They never played it up until this point. So, again. Wait, what was the year? 1995. We're, we're this, is, this is so funny because... Brandon Novak tells a story about this show yeah. all the time. The Unbroken Chain show? Yes. And he didn't get to it. He, okay. like, got arrested or something. You know, I actually remember him telling I didn't know it was this show specifically, yeah. but yeah. Because he's from there, too. Yeah. And you can hear in his voice, he's got such a Delco accent. But, uh, and he was in Baltimore for a while, too, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he's from Baltimore, but he's back and forth in Philly all the time. I digress. Sorry, it's my fault. It's all good. The point of the story is me and my homies uh, were pre-gaming at my house. Dolores in my parents' bedroom watching QVC around the clock. She asked us, do we want something to eat before we go out? It's a school night. She's like, make sure you get home. This is a school night. I'm like, sure, we'll eat. She makes uh, Velveeta shells and cheese for me and my buddy Steve. And uh, a couple of our other buddies were there. Me and Steve scarfed down the mac and cheese and dose at around 5 o'clock. Shortly thereafter, we pile into some cars. Probably a dubious choice to take the LSD with the Velveeta mac and cheese also. I'm not sure why we thought it, we yeah. should take it two and a half hours before showtime. Right. If I, <laughs> my guess is so we would be good and high before the show started and then could take more and not worry about the whole come up. That's my guess. You, you want to be ready. But again, in my mind, I thought, oh, I know what this is about. I'm good. So uh, we hop in the car and Steve gets in the car in front and um in the bitch seat of like a jeep cherokee they're both jeep cherokees i'm in the bitch seat in the back we're driving from cherry hill new jersey where i which is the bitch seat the middle seat oh yes okay yes sit bitch you know so of course me i never had a license i was always you know low man on the totem pole if you will (coughs) moral of the story being steve's in front i'm behind i start bugging out Uh, no one else is on l in the car but me um, and we're like 17 year olds headed into the dead show, like as green and naive and unexperienced as some like Jewish boys from Cherry Hill, New Jersey could be. And we're going over the Ben Franklin bridge or excuse me, the Walt Whitman bridge. And next thing I know, my buddy Steve is in the car in front of us, full torso and head hanging out the side of the passenger, hurling the shells and cheese of course. out <laughs> onto the pavement. And as we rolled by, I looked out and had like an unobstructed view, unobstructed view of the macaronis swimming in and out of each other. Now, I was already anxious and worried, and that set me off because I thought he was in distress, so then my empathy kicked in. So I went into the most intense, anxious, dark, fearful tunnel to the point where I wouldn't get out of the car. Full dead show going on around. Nitrous tank, circus, partying everyone's fine steve the purge 
He was good. Felt like a million bucks. Had an amazing show. I refused to get out of the car. Gave away my ticket. Aye. Stayed outside. Ended up catching the speed line back, which is like the subway for, for Philly, uh, back to Jersey and went to my buddy's house and just like sat on the couch. And that was the night they played Unbroken Chain for the first time. And because I thought that I could handle a dose of acid and shells and cheese and Dolores and all that, I was like, had this like hubris or ego that I... And the sacrament of LSD reminded me just how small I am, just how you know minuscule I am in the big picture. And I learned a really hard lesson. And I actually didn't take acid again until I was 33. Wow. Yeah. That's an awesome story. Yeah. And I think it's a great echo of the crystal wash story. Yeah. So that's why I don't do the crystal wash stuff. But years later, for no reason whatsoever, after 200 times of being like, thanks, but no thanks, thanks, but no thanks, <coughs> I said, sure. Didn't you recently dose? Yeah. How was it? Fantastic. Velveeta or no Velveeta? No Velveeta. You know, recently I was home. I was at uh, Sonic Bloom in Colorado. Amazing festival. Tipper played. Tipper's like your electronic, Your electronic of, music guy. Electronic music, yeah. Just very, very psychedelic. And I was by myself on the side of a mountain. And I said, sure. And it was a good time. It was well, for me, it's not like a party. It's not a good time. Like I, 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 th I consider it a sacrament. But you can still have a good time with the sacrament. I'm just saying it's not. I was like, oh, let's go rage or let's well, go party. Partying on LSD is a is a total like. It's much more. It's a falsehood. It's an impossible. If you're trying to fucking party, I mean, I don't know. I never had it like that. It was always some great uh, journey. But a non-journey was recently. I think me and Linda. Me and Linda went to see Roger Waters, and before we left... He's here tonight. What? He's in Salt Lake City tonight. Oh, my God. Um, I thought you were going to say he's here. I was like, let's go. Um, but so fucking me and Linda go see Roger Waters, and before we go, Linda's going to make mac and cheese for Nora and Susan. <laughs> she could have chosen the Annie's Organic, but no, she made the Velveeta, and Nora said, Mommy... Don't make the Velveeta. It's disgusting. So that's full circle. Yeah. And you know, we don't do Velveeta anymore either because my fiance is a holistic nutritionist. Yes. And he's all the way. All right. Well, there you go. And Begets, it's been a pleasure to have you ending this this Park City, Jerry Stahl, fucking spectacular of Dopey. I want to congratulate you. Thank you. that is similar to what I just experienced, even though I haven't put out the Rising Appalachia app. Like you waited and hoped and asked for Jerry Stahl. He came on the show. He delivered. You're on cloud nine. There's a certain sense of accomplishment there that I want you to recognize because you're always on to the next one, thinking about where, who's coming on next, where are you going next. Just stop and smell the roses, man. This is an amazing, I said it again, but okay. it is an incredible, uh, you know, something feather in the cap and i just want you to uh take your bow well i appreciate it and, and i really loved having jerry on the show and his his classic book is permanent midnight but his new book which i think you'd really get a kick out of b is called nine 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 one man's tale of depression and psychic torment and a bus tour of the holocaust that's his new book. Wow. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, check it out, Dopey Nation. Thank you, B. And fucking everybody, before we go, uh, leave an email. What did you think of, of Jerry? 
wasn't it nice to have B on the back of the show in person? It's a fucking, uh, it's a joy. It's a joy for me. Rate and review the Dopey podcast. It goes a long way steering those algorithms and for new listeners. Look at that. I haven't said that. I don't think I've ever said algorithm or rate and review since the old days. You, you should because, you know. All right. Rate and review that shit, you fuckers. Come on. What the fuck? Thanks for having me on, Dave. And uh, everybody, check out the Up for Life podcast. Hopefully there'll be a new Dave from Dopey episode on the back end of this weekend. So stay tuned. Right on. But thank you for uh, having me. I want to say... To everyone out there, stay strong, Dopey Nation. But me not say toodles. Yes, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, who we miss. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by and I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller and it's high noon where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had